RadioInfluence.com This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor is going to happen in August. We're going to chat about that and so many other things going on in the world of MMA here on this week's episode of the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. Of course, I'll be joined by Sam Kaplan. Other topics we're going to talk about is the passing away of Tim Haig, also Demetrius Johnson's situation with the UFC, the MMA Journalist Association, plus this weekend's Bellator NYC. Of course, we are brought to you by Fight TV. Watch MMA wrestling and boxing live on the screen of your choice, phone, tablet, or TV using just the Fight app. Download Fight free today by going to Fight, FITE.TV forward slash Radio Influence forward slash. Once again, that is Fight, FITE.TV forward slash Radio Influence forward slash. That link is also available on RadioInfluence.com. And if you are not subscribing to this podcast, do that on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and also on Google Play. Just search the MMA Insider. Sam, how's it going? Hell is frozen over. McGregor versus Mayweather. I had to come back, Jason, and talk about it. Thank you for doing another show with me. I appreciate it. It is. Uh, it's crazy. I, uh, I, you know, I never thought this would happen. I just, you know, I just thought there were so many obstacles. But the moment that the obstacle between the UFC and McGregor got done, I kind of, it was kind of at that point I said, "Oh my goodness, this actually might happen." Well, you know how social media can get crazy and people get crazy on social media. And I, you know, this story has been out there for, you know, what, over a year now. It's been rumored and discussed. And, you know, I would talk to people behind the scenes that knew what was going on. And they, they assured me that there was a real opportunity for this to happen. So I'm not too surprised, but there's a lot of people out there that thought I was crazy for saying don't underestimate the possibility of McGregor really fighting Mayweather, that this just isn't necessarily hype. There could be a sincere interest in the two of them coming together, doing a mega fight and making a ton of money. Yeah, it's going to make a a ton of money. Uh, I I just there's so many interesting aspects of, of this deal. And, you know, there's there's so many questions that have been asked by mixed martial arts fans. We, we've got some questions to, to get into this week. I mean, I and, and I've listened to so many people talk about this fight. And first off, I don't think this is going all 12 rounds. I don't think Mayweather will toy with him for 12 rounds. I think this fight's over within four rounds. Oh, I couldn't disagree with you more. Well, for, first off, I think we're both in agreement that people that think McGregor had that he has a shot at this, they're out of their mind. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because I guess to steal a Diaz quote, you're being sold wolf tickets. You know, hearing <laughs> Dana White come out, hearing Steven Espinosa come out, you know, hearing even John Anik come out. And it's their job to make you think that Conor McGregor, who in reality has a zero chance to win this fight, has a chance. Coming out and saying that Conor McGregor has a puncher's chance is a ridiculous statement. This is not MMA. They are not going to be fighting in four-ounce gloves. They're going to be fighting in 12-ounce gloves. And if you know anything about Floyd Mayweather, he is not a brawler. 
he is not going to mix it up with Conor McGregor. And as such, Jason, even though I do agree with you that Mayweather is going to win, I don't think we're going to see a KO. I don't think we're necessarily going to see a TKO. I think this goes to the distance. I think McGregor survives. I, I think that where I start thinking is is you know if this fight you know depending on how many rounds it does go it is simply apologize does, for my dog there, Jason. We'll we'll we'll, we'll work Char- on that. Charlotte made the, Charlotte made the broadcast. <laughs> I can't tell you how many podcasts I listen to where dogs make it onto the air. Yeah, it, it sometimes happens. Sometimes I have a way to uh, kind of silence that out, get that out <laughs> of it here in the post editing of it, but. You know, when you think about, you know, I wonder with Connor is, you know, it, you know, how will his cardio be as this fight goes on? You know, depending on how many rounds, I just, you know, I know a lot of people have said, you know, will this be good for boxing? Will it be good for MMA? And, you know, kind of, you know, and I think my my biggest fear I would have if I'm in the UFC is, and and I was listening to an interview that Dan Raphael did on Brett Okamoto's podcast, which I thought was a very interesting thought process is, you know, this thought process that I've even thrown out there, other people have thrown out there, is that McGregor's going to make so much money. Will he have the motivation to come back to MMA? And Dan Raphael's point was, well, Floyd Mayweather has been making all this money and he continues to come back. I, you know, I think that that has got to be the only fear of the, year of the UFC. And you'd almost hope that maybe the – the agreement between the UFC and Conor McGregor says that, hey, you're coming back, and, and the date I've heard is December 30th. Well, I think, first off, I want to talk about the cardio. I don't think the cardio is going to be as big of an issue as some people think because, yes, there's it's scheduled for more time than a typical MMA fight. That being said, a boxing fight is different than an MMA fight. Unless Mayweather presses McGregor, which I don't see happening. I think Mayweather is going to respect McGregor's punching power. I don't think you're going to see him mix it up. I don't think you're going to see him take very many chances, if any chances whatsoever. I don't think McGregor is going to have that point where he gasses out. Plus, if he needs to in boxing, if you're not being pressured and the fight's not being taken to you, you can take rounds off. I mean, you're you're out there, you're moving around, but you can kind of take take it down in the middle, tone it down in the middle of the fight and kind of save and conserve your strength for the end of the fight. And I think McGregor will have opportunities to do that, and I think he will do that because there's not going to be opportunities for him to win rounds. I think, you know, not only does the fight go the distance, but I think Mayweather will shut him out all 12 rounds. Now, as far as, you know, the exposure to the UFC by allowing McGregor to do this, I don't know if they really had a choice. I think McGregor had a potential legal out with regards to his contract and the Ali Act and getting licensed as a boxer, I don't know if it would have held up, but I think that de- there definitely was a long-term challenge there that could have put McGregor on the sidelines for an extended period of time. If you're the UFC, you don't want to see that. You don't want to lose that money. You're already losing money by McGregor not fighting. This is an opportunity for him to, to get back on pay-per-view and for the UFC to help their annual pay-per-view revenue for the 2017 fiscal year they're going to get a big boost, and they really need that based on how many investors WME IMG brought into the fold when they bought the UFC. They really need to be able to continue to show big pay-per-view earnings. If there's a huge dip like had been projected uh, you know, at this point with prior to the McGregor announcement, they, they, they would have had some heat. So this is going to 
really help their pay-per-view numbers. And I think ultimately, long-term, it's going to help McGregor as an MMA draw because just looking at everything so far, his Q score has already gone up. He is already ha- he already has a big base. He already has a large fan base. But the general public's awareness of Conor McGregor is only going to increase, not only nationally but internationally, not just in Ireland and the United States, but all over the world. You know, the, the day after this was announced, I was working out. I was doing cardio on the treadmill, and on just about every TV, they were covering Conor McGregor. I mean, he was yeah. all over ESPN, and that's just the start. As we get closer to the bout, there's going to be tons of radio advertising. I don't know if CBS owns that many stations at this point, but you know, CBS they, and CBS has pretty much gotten out of the radio business. I still think, though, that they're going to have a radio row set up and a lot of the old CBS affiliates, they're going to send people out there and they're going to look like they, they've they had, like they've done in the past for the big Mayweather fights. I think that when Showtime gets involved, they're going to do their version of 24 seven. I think it's what is it called? Access or something like that. They're going to do that. It may pop up on CBS. I think you're going to see it everywhere. There's going to be so much mainstream media coverage that as long as Conor McGregor doesn't embarrass himself. In this fight, and Jason, like I said, I disagree with you. I don't think he's getting TKO'd. Maybe a doctor's stoppage late if he gets cut, or you know, the the referee feels like there's just, it's so overwhelming that he has no shot, and they just stop the fight in the eighth or ninth round. But I don't see Conor, I don't see that happening. I don't see Conor McGregor embarrassing himself when he does this fight. I think he's going to take an extended amount of time off. But when he comes back to MMA, that is going to be a gigantic pay per view. Yeah, you know, what? I think he's just he's just going to come back to the sport as a much bigger star. You're not going to see him fight three or four times a year ever again, but I think one or two times a year you're going to see him do big fights and get big paydays. One of the questions we got here, we got a ton of questions. This might be the, the most questions we've ever received on, on a podcast. Uh, and uh, first up, this is George, one UFC fan. Win or lose, does Connor come back? And if he loses, does this hurt his brand, or is it bad for the UFC MMA? I don't, th- I don't think this hurts his brand. Um, you know, because I, I don't think he's going to do anything stupid in, in this fight. Uh, I, I do. You know, if he comes back to MMA, I mean, there's going to be so much attention on his fight, you know, whether it's Tony Ferguson, whether it's Nate Diaz or, or whether it's somebody else. I mean, you were kind of talking about the pay-per-view business. The UFC needs Conor McGregor because there is no Ronda Rousey. You've got Jones and Cormier. As long as that fight comes in, you know, we talked about it on the last podcast, you know, probably six, 700,000 pay-per-view buys. Outside of that, the UFC does not have anything else this year that is going to draw over 400,000 buys. I agree. I agree there. I mean, it's, I mean, you look at it, you know, you look at right now, the UFC pay-per-view business in 2017, it's a down year. Oh, it's, they're having, I mean, if they, if they hadn't gotten this fight, they were going to have a horrendous year. I, I, I they were going to be in trouble. So this obviously helps them out. But, you know, I think with McGregor, it can't hurt him unless he loses in embarrassing fashion. He can still win by going the distance and not getting knocked out because if Floyd fights the typical Floyd fight where Floyd doesn't engage, he doesn't push the pace, you know, he he fights that traditional defensive style that he typically, you know, empowers, employs rather, then, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are going to come out and they're going to trash Mayweather and they're going to, you know, be on uh, McGregor's side. I mean, McGregor can win this fight 
even if he loses. If he's the seen as the aggressor and Floyd fights the typical fight that he always fights, you know, people are going to be upset because I, I, I've, you know, I've, I have followed Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather's career. A lot of people, you know, going into a fight, whether it was Canelo or De La Hoya, they would say, oh, this is the fight. You know, he's fighting a bigger guy, a harder puncher. He's going to be forced to brawl and, and, and mix it up. And it doesn't happen. Floyd shows why he's the greatest defensive striker in the history of pugilism time in and time out doesn't engage wins the fight and then afterwards everyone that thought for some reason it was going to be different this time they come away disappointed and feeling ripped off and i think we're going to see the same thing here once again one of the things that i don't i haven't heard anyone talk about it and maybe you've heard people talk about but when we get to this fight on fight night inside the arena will it be a pro mayweather or pro mcgregor uh, audience it depends you know the two-month turnaround isn't going to hurt the pay-per-view buys, and ultimately I don't know if it's going to hurt the live gate. But do his fans in Ireland, is this enough time for them to take off from work? Do they have enough money saved up? Can they make you know the, the needed plans and reservations to get over here in time? If two months is enough time, then yeah, that that you know I would say that 2,000 you know, fans from Ireland are going to sound like 20,000 in, in that arena for that fight. So if enough of his fans from Ireland can come over, you know, potentially you could see a a crowd that sounds pro McGregor because a lot of Mayweather fans, they're upper crust, higher end celebrity types, and they're not necessarily making tons of noise. And uh, I saw the the rumor ticket prices. I mean, it, it's not for the common fan. You you got you got to have a lot of expendable income to be able to go this fight. I mean, look, it's going to be a, a a huge pay per view. I actually have a football game that night, so probably by the time I get out of the stadium, uh, it's probably when that that fight will be going off. So uh, you know, maybe it was we'll, an exhibition game for t- for the Bucks. Yeah, that would be a preseason game. I uh, <laughs> I, I just I just signed my agreement for the uh, 2017 season, and uh, we play the uh, the Browns that night at 7:30. So uh, I'll probably get out of the stadium 11:30 midnight somewhere in that range. And uh, there, there's a couple of bars uh, right around the stadium that uh, you know show UFC events. So I would expect them to be showing it. I mean, look, and will you I'd, be able to get in? Well, that that's a big question mark because look, anyone who's showing this pay per view is going to be co- be have a cover charge, uh, just because the pay per view is going to be so much. Uh, it does sound like Johan Promotions is going to be the promotions company that's going to be handling the commercial sales for this pay per view, and uh, you know, look, it's you know for it's going to be the pricing from what I've I've learned is is going to be essentially be what it was for. Uh, for the Pacquiao Mayweather fight, so you know a place that maybe generally in, in the range of, of pays, you know a thousand dollars for a UFC pay per view is uh, I'm hearing around forty five hundred is going to be the cost for them. So for any bar, I mean, I, I think the minimum is is going to be twenty bucks. I wouldn't be surprised if cover at other places is more than twenty bucks. Um, I think it'd be interesting. Do they do they show it in movie theaters? You know, we've seen the UFC do that before. Bellator is doing that this weekend. Um, it's going to be a massive, you know, pay-per-view because this is an event. This is, it's a spectacle because it's going to draw so many different types of people to that pay-per-view or, or to a sports bar on that night to watch this that oh, yeah. ha- have never seen who Conor McGregor is. I mean, look, I'm more interested in the press conferences leading up to this fight than <laughs> after the fight because I can only imagine what Conor McGregor is going to say. You, you make a good point about a non-traditional audience wanting to see this fight. A, a friend of my fiance's 
texted her. She wanted to make plans to go out to Vegas and buy tickets. And then Raquel, my fiance, explained the costs involved. And suddenly the the, the agreement was she'll come over and watch it with us. But, you know, <laughs> people that you wouldn't even think would have an interest in this fight, they have an interest in this fight because it's being covered everywhere and it's going to continue to be covered everywhere. Another quick point. I want to go back. Steven Espinoza trying to make the, and he's the president of Showtime, um, you know, sports making, trying to make the case that McGregor has a shot because Floyd apparently is arrogant. Floyd has always been arrogant. And I know <laughs> Steven Espinoza in his heart doesn't believe that Mayweather has a shot, but he needs to get all of you to believe that McGregor has a shot so that you'll pay that money, even though it's going to hurt you in the wallet, even though it's going to amount to the cost of three UFC pay-per-views, he needs you to believe McGregor has a shot. But Steven Espinoza needs to come out with a better argument, saying that Floyd's arrogance could hurt him. You know, the the the, the Floyd is arrogant argument is stupid. The, the puncher's chance argument is stupid. Floyd has fought heavy hitters in the past, namely Arturo Gotti. Uh, you know, Andre Berto is not a light hitter. And these guys have never even come close to pulling, putting Floyd in danger. I will say one of the things I did love seeing, and I, and I saw this uh, early this morning, was Leonard Ellerby saying, yeah, we're not doing any boxers versus MMA fires, which I was, thank God that, that he came out and said that because, you know, one of the questions we got from... You mean uh, for, the under, for the undercard, you mean? Yeah, for the undercard. Yeah. He said, and this was uh, from at WWE Big Show Fan 6, said he's excited to hear every MMA fire with a microphone calling out boxers instead of division rivals post-fight. Thanks a lot, money fight. And, you know, look, you, you saw Stipe Miocic was doing this to Anthony. The Joshua and, that, and, and Jason, just, Jason, that was stupid. Mio just like, looks I, look like an idiot. Like, what are you not, doing? Not only that, what would you have done if he said yes? I, you, you know, it's, it's. I think a lot of people underestimate the skill, especially from the MMA side of high level boxers. I, you know, I'm not a high level boxer. Never, you know, been close to that. But I've been around gyms. I've been around boxers. I, I've sparred. I've watched guys spar. And it's a whole different ballgame. Watching a high-level boxer, it's just – it's like nothing you've ever seen. And then these heavyweights, these guys, I've seen them spar. They go in about 50 60%. And if you're not a legit boxer when you spar a heavyweight, you're, 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 you're done by the second round. Just your body can't handle those the, the, the power of those punches. And Stipe against a high-level boxer who, who can hit that hard, he would have gotten knocked out. And financially, what would have been the incentive? Yes, a lot of MMA fighters are trying to get it on that card because they think that it's going to get them a lot of exposure, and it will. But exposure doesn't necessarily equal money because you're not going to get a cut of the pay-per-view. Stipe was not going to make much more than he would for a regular UFC title fight. And I got news for everybody that wants to get on that card. There's only two people getting points on that uh, from that show, and that's Floyd and that's Connor. If you're on that show, you're fighting for your show money. That's it. So, you know, what? What? where's the financial upside for an MMA fighter to leave their comfort zone, go into a completely different martial art that in which they're going to be overmatched? Where's the financial incentive? What? Because you may not have to wear Reebok that night and you might be able to carry your own sponsors in, into the into the ring, which may not happen. I, I, I know that Floyd doesn't have to represent Reebok that night. But if you're Stipe Miocic and you go to the UFC and you ask permission to do a fight against Anthony, Anthony Johnson, uh, Anthony Joshua, chances are, even though Connor's getting away with it, 
and is not having to have to represent Reebok, chances are you're not going to have that requirement waived. Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and this was something that they, the, the Miocic camp's kind of been throwing out there ever since he, you know, he had to fight. I mean, look, if you're Stipe Miocic, first off, you want Cain Velasquez to get healthy because that that's the biggest fight he, he can have. And it, it's it was great to see Leonard Elby just come out and say, yeah, we're, we're not doing this. I mean, you know, Adrian Broner. I mentioned that you know he won to fight Nate Diaz, but you know really that night and Nate's not going to do that. Well, Nate's Nate's too smart. Nate's too smart. Nate's boxed. He's sparred. He knows the difference between a a world class boxer and a run of the mill guy. You know, and that if if I was an MMA fighter, if I was going to do it, I'm not calling out a heavyweight champion. I'm not calling out a champion in any weight class or any ranked contender. I might call out a guy like Roy Jones Jr., who at 47 is a shell of his former self, but still has a name. I mean, I would if I was gonna do if I was gonna do this as an MMA fighter, I would look for a guy that had a name but was past his prime. So at least I might have a chance at a path to victory. I, you're, I, if you're fighting guys like Broner and Anthony Joshua, and you're an MMA fighter, you've got no shot. You're gonna get embarrassed. And if you fight guys that are heavier, like Anthony Joshua, you're gonna get hurt. Well, and I think also the thing about that undercard is gonna be it's gonna be about selling up the Showtime talent to try to ele- to get the rub for those guys to where. It, you know, maybe they're fight. You know, they they view them as a draw in six nine months. And because, as I said, you're going to have a different audience that is going to be tuning into you. Uh, one other question that we got on this uh, subject uh, was also from George. He says, "Do you think the reason the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather match got made so quickly was because the UFC and Con and Conor McGregor made a list of demands that were non negotiable? It seems the Floyd camp was very easy to work with, which makes me think." If they wanted this fight, then they had to meet those demands. I don't know. I don't know if the UFC is walking into a meeting with Mayweather's people and putting out non-negotiable terms right off the bat. I think basically the reason why this got done and got so, uh, done so fast between the UFC and Mayweather's camp, I, I think probably the the expectations were were realistic. You know, I, I thought this could be a long, drawn-out negotiation. I was surprised how fast it was completed once the UFC got the deal done with McGregor. You know, there there were rumors that maybe Lorenzo Fertitta w- was brought in to negotiate this deal, and if that's the case, that wouldn't surprise me. But I think Dana, having had a boxing background, and maybe the Fertittas knowing, you know, the politics of Las Vegas, Nevada boxing, and knowing the Mayweather camp very well, I don't think they walked into the conference room with unrealistic uh, demands or expectations. They knew what they could get, and they asked for it, and they got it. And uh, look, it's going to be a, a huge event, and uh, I, I can tell you that uh, I've had a lot of people who never reach out to me about combat sports. You know, recording this here on uh, Tuesday night, January twentieth, tomorrow morning. I'm, I'm going. You know, I got the the uh, you know message today. It's like, hey, can you come on tomorrow morning to talk with me with Conor McGregor? And I'll tell you this rarely does it happen that I get a phone call from a local radio station that they want me to come on and talk combat sports. It's just, it's, it's a rarity. And, and it's just, but this has, it's transcended and, and it's got people, people talking and, you know, it's two months from now and, and that Saturday night, there's going to be so many people watching it and, and you know, does it have an effect on the UFC long-term? I don't know, but uh, it's going to be interesting. And, and if, you'll if get, somehow you'll get more of those requests, you're going to get oh, a lot more of them leading up. Oh, I'm sure I will. I mean, but if somehow, and look, I, I don't, I think it's literally a, a 1% chance to happen, but if somehow Conor McGregor does win, you know the rematch is happening. 
Well, that's another thing I want to talk about. I'm going to go Stephen A. Smith on you, Skip Bayless on you for a second. I know why there are odds on this fight. Obviously, it's a big fight, lots of money to be made by the books. But in reality, I don't think there should be a line on this fight. I, I think it should be totally off the board because to me, it's an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And Mayweather possesses such a higher level of skill and technique and is so much more dominant than McGregor as a boxer that Mayweather can control the outcome of this fight. I mean, he can't knock, you know, he, I don't think he can knock McGregor out, but if he wants to dump rounds, he can dump rounds. If he wants to win every round, he can win every round. If he, if he decided to do something crazy, like bet the other way and bet the other way through third parties, and lose the fight, he could do that. Now, I don't think Floyd would ever do that. I think the O in his loss column means a lot to him, and I don't think he would ever dump a fight regardless of how much money he could make. But it just it's to me, it's such a lopsided fight that when typically when you have uh, athletic contests that are this lopsided, they're not on the board. And I realize this is too big an event. Too many eyeballs are going to be on it for it not to be on the board and have odds, but – it's so, Floyd has such control over the multiple potential outcomes of this fight that I would never be comfortable betting this fight because, you know, if he wanted to orchestrate things to get to, to make a rematch more attractive, he could do that because if he shuts out McGregor every round or knocks him out or TKOs him early or puts the, you know, the, the commission in a position where there, there's a stoppage in the fight, then there's no reason to do a rematch. No one will care about the rematch. But if he can put McGregor in a position where it looks like he he was competing, then suddenly you have a case for a rematch. And Teddy Atlas made a good point. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see this happen. And if you're McGregor, it makes all the sense in the world. If if you're in that, if you make it to the twelfth round and you've lost every round and you can't get to Floyd to try to knock him out, why not just take him down? There's uh, My understanding is there's stipulations in the contract about that. And there's financial penalties if he but, does that. What's, what? How, but how steep is the penalty? I, I don't know how steep the penalty is, but knowing how much, how much McGregor loves money, I, I couldn't imagine he would risk that. Well, I mean... I mean, the, you, look, you, at the end of the day with this fight, Mayweather is the guy who has everything to lose. But I just don't see McGregor having a shot. I don't think Oh, I don't I don't I don't think May, he has a I shot. Mean, when, but when Mayweather spars, there's a bigger chance of him getting knocked out in sparring than than fighting McGregor. I, I think this is gonna look like two guys sparring and going lightly. Where where you have a, a trainer breaking in a new guy and going easy on the guy. Well, I, I oh, think this is gonna I, I mean to me this is Batman versus Superman the movie. Enjoy this fight for the spectacle of seeing two giants within their respective fields of combat meeting in the same venue at the same time. Enjoy it for the spectacle. But, you know, it's like seeing Batman and Superman. If you watch it from that perspective, the movie itself, you know, seeing Batman and Superman for the first time in a live action movie together on the screen, it's it's pretty entertaining. Now, if you're expecting the delivery and the execution of, of the actual event to be flawless and, and 
you know, be cohesive, then you're going to be highly disappointed. If you're expecting a classic action-packed fight between McGregor and Mayweather, you're not going to get it. You're going to be disappointed, but just enjoy it for the pageantry, for the spectacle, for the surrealness of it. If you keep it in proper perspective, it'll be a fun fight to watch as long as you keep it in proper perspective. And, you know, Luke, Luke Thomas and Ariel Hawani had an interesting exchange on Twitter last week. There's, you know, once the media gets their hands in this, you, you know, you've got to either defend why this fight, you know, should happen, or you've got to crap all over it and talk about how it's a disgrace. How about it's just neither? It, it is what it is. It's an event, and it's a larger-than-life event. It's potentially once-in-a-lifetime event. Mm-hmm. Just enjoy it for what it is and, and just don't get caught up in all the hype and have to you know have a strong opinion about whether it should or shouldn't happen. Just people are losing, you know, last week watching Twitter, watching MMA and boxing Twitter. People were losing their minds over this. Oh, yeah. I remember I was uh, I was stuck in traffic when all this was going on. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it's crazy. August 26th is going to be that whole week is just going to be insane. I, I I was thinking about this because, uh, you know, we talk about how this this topic kind of transcends all sports. Father's Day. MMA is never brought up. MMA was brought up on Father's Day at uh, at my grandmother's house. Really? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it never comes up because, you, know, you know, obviously they, they know, you know, they know I, I, I do the podcasting, you know, and, and so they're asking about it. But it's uh, it, that week is going to be insane. Could, what what happened if you had already booked a vacation in Vegas that weekend and you don't care at all about MMA and boxing? Do you just like try to, tra- to to sell off your room online? Yeah, I mean. I know they've built a lot of new hotels in recent years in, in Vegas, but I would think that capacity-wise, that's going to be a pretty booked-up weekend. Even with all the new properties, they still may not have enough rooms. Yeah, and uh, I was also thinking this. You know, the UFC has—it's it, not been officially announced, but August nineteenth was a, a targeted date for their their August pay-per-view. I think they should just cancel it. Yeah, I mean, if they do anything. You know, I would try to maybe do a show on FS1 or, or Fox the, the the day before. You know, maybe do like a, a rare Friday night show. Just try to and do it in Vegas and try to capitalize on, on the it's buzz be, and all yeah. the people that are going to be there. But I, I would not do a, a pay-per-view. I would not charge anyone to, to see that show. But, I mean, why not do a Fox show the night before? I, and yeah. maybe Fox may, Fox may not want to do that. They may not want to push people to a Showtime pay-per-view, but – the rating would be huge, I would think. Oh, yeah. You, you would have to imagine it would be huge. Now, I mentioned about we got a ton of questions this week. The topic that we got the most questions on was Bellator NYC. And, and I'll start off with this. Sam, I don't feel any buzz for this card. You know, I, I have to agree with you. I thought there would be a, a much bigger buzz I thought there'd be a lot more interplay in public between Vanderlei and Sonnen. And there just, there just hasn't been, it feels like from an outsider's perspective, looking at this from the outside in that the way this has been promoted, it, it's a promoter that does not have a hundred percent confidence or even 75% confidence that their main event is necessarily going to go off. Can and you yes, blame them? I can't blame them, but they made the fight. So if you're going to make the fight, you got to promote it the right way. And yes, we've made it to fight week. Still not a hundred percent guarantee that this fight goes off. Something could happen 
at weigh-ins, you know, you you, you never know. This is just uh, Vanderlei is just squirrely. You know, I, I, I think no, I think I have the, no doubt that Sonnen's going to show up, but you know, Vanderlei is very squirrely. That that would be my concern if I was Scott Coker. Is can Vanderlei handle himself professionally at the weigh-ins? And I don't know about that because you know I'm sure a lot of people that have listened to this they've seen the footage of Vanderlei and Charles Crazy Horse Bennett from I think it was what back in December. I mean, yeah. you know they're at the hotel and, and, and you know Vanderlei is ready to throw down in the middle of the hotel in Japan. You know, just 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 throw down there. And I think another concern that I have is, you know, when Vanderlei fought in Pride, the guy was unbelievable. I mean, he was a savage. And the speculation was that a lot of those guys that fought in Pride and came over to the UFC, the reason why they were completely different once they left Japan was because of the drug testing. And when you're on that stuff, you believe that you're you're superhuman. You know, it, it, it just compounds the growth of testosterone in your body. And testosterone gives you that confidence of feeling invincible and, and, and feeling like no one can stop you that there's not a man alive that, that can, that can beat you in a fight. And you come off that stuff, you come over to the U S and suddenly you go from being, you know, immortal to mortal. Yeah. And I think, you know, Vanderlei, you know, just, I think he's one of those pride guys. Once you, you put him uh, in a situation where there's testing, it's just, he's not the same. And of course it was last week. I reported that, uh, there was out of competition done. Uh, both fighters did, uh, submit out of competition, uh, samples, Last week, but, you know, of course, a part of that is sitting there and saying it should have been done weeks ago, not a week before the fight. I The New York Commission will not confirm nor deny, but I heard that VADA was being used to uh, handle the drug testing for this. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in terms of that fight. But you know, to me, it has no buzz. Also, it, this is what I, I found interesting because I know me and you were going back and forth privately about the marketing of this event and you know they are using G and G events to sell this fight car commercially. And so on Monday I went to their website and I put in my zip code Sam. It came up with one place within twenty five miles of my house that was showing the event. Now typically it's anywhere from fifteen to thirty places to show UFC pay per views. Well, as a brand, Bellator is not established as a pay-per-view. I'll tell you, and here's the other problem, and and this has got to be alarming if you're Bellator. I talked to a bar that shows nearly every UFC event. They did not get a sales pitch on this pay-per-view. That's got to be a concern if I'm Bellator, that I have hired a company that is not calling a bar that shows UFC events. Well, the UFC is the UFC for a reason, and they know oh, no how question. to do a lot of things better than anyone else, and that includes a lot of their back-end business dealings. I mean, they are a pay-per-view monster. They, they've lived and died on pay-per-view now for God knows how long, and, and this is only the second ever pay-per-view for, for Bellator, and marketing a pay-per-view is different than marketing a show on network television. It, it's it's a whole different animal and this is only the second time that Bellator's done it and a lot of the people that, you know, from a marketing and distribution perspective that are third-party vendors that that work with the UFC, 
they have exclusives. They're not available to bring their expertise and knowledge to Bellator. So Bellator has to find the right support staff to come in as contractors to augment their existing staff. And maybe they have those guys and maybe they don't. But there's so many things about pay-per-view. It's not something you're born with. You have to either bring in the, the established people that have made big money for other promoters and other different you know entertainment venues. You either have to bring those guys in or you've got to kind of learn it on your own and there's going to be a lot of growing pains. And that's why no matter what happens with this pay-per-view, Bellator has to make a commitment to it. They've got to stick with it. They've got to stay the course. I'm not saying do a pay-per-view every month or even bi-monthly, but they've got to do two or three of these so they can get better at it and establish their name in the marketplace as a pay-per-view brand and create market share. It's it's a different type of viewer that watches a show on Spike TV and then pays money to watch it on pay-per-view. And you're going to have to convert that audience, and it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long road. But if Bellator is resilient, and they have the right fights and the right fighters, and they stick at it, eventually they will create some market share for themselves. Now, how big can that market share be? That remains to be seen, because if you talk to a lot of people in the cable industry, in the, the entertainment industry, they're telling, they'll are telling they tell you that pay-per-view is a dying medium, and you know it's only going to get worse as years go on. And you know eventually the UFC will not do nearly as many pay-per-views as they're doing now, which could... Or could work to Bellator's advantage because there might be less saturation in the pay-per-view market when they run these pay-per-views. There may be more people with money in their pockets ready to spend to buy a Bellator pay-per-view. You know, there's I think I've called this as a very expensive case study for Bellator to see if, if they can get people to uh to purchase a, a pay-per-view you know we always talk about the piracy and, and different ways or piracy you know the thing i keep hearing more and more about what people are using for piracy sam is that frog tv uh no amazon fire sticks oh they're uh what, what's the yeah, they're they're jailbreaking it but what's the uh term for jailbreaking the fire stick i forget what it is i don't i don't have a fire but, stick so yeah. i wouldn't know <laughs> but i but I've, I've heard... i think it's called cracked that you can uh you can download an app that kind of overwrites a lot of the restrictions and you can, you'd be amazed at what you can get. And that's obviously going to be a, a big issue for, for Bellator. Um, you know, and, and there's so many things, you know, we were talking about the marketing aspect of this. If, if I was in Bellator's marketing department and, and whatever their budget was for this, I mean, it, it, and let's just say their budget was a hundred thousand dollars to spend in advertising. Uh, which is nothing. Which is nothing. Yeah, I'm just throwing a number out. There. Especially in New York, that's probably um, ten dollars everywhere else. But you know, if I, in terms of in terms of buying advertising with online media, MMA websites would be a very, very, very small portion. And and I told you this privately, where I would put a majority of that that advertising, barstool sports, because I, I think that the the question I have about MMA as we we sit here in 2017 is. Is MMA as a sport still attractive to that under 25-year-old audience? And I don't know if it is. I don't know if the sport's growing in that demographic. Yeah, I mean, it's the the, the, the catchphrase in, I guess, 2005, 2006 for MMA was it, it's, it's not your father. It's not your father's sport, which is boxing. Well, a lot of those people, you know, it's not your father's sport, but now, now those people are fathers themselves. So are your sons and daughters – 
you know, as you get married and, you know, have kids, you know, are your sons and daughters going to have an interest in the sport or is it going to be the, you know, is it going to be, is MMA going to be to your children what boxing is to you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of kids that won't play football now. Really good athletes that, you know, you, you talk to them, they're in junior high school or high school and they don't play football. And you ask them why. And they say, because of head trauma. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to end up a vegetable. Mm-hmm. And no one from our generation, Jason, ever thought that like that. No, no, you never, you, know? you never thought about that playing football. I mean, you, the, the head trauma, something was, you never, um, you know, you, you never thought of that. When I started sparring MMA and doing smokers, I never thought about the repercussions of getting punched really hard in the face. Never once entered my mind that there could be long-term effects. And some people might say, well, that's common sense. It's it when you're doing it, you just don't you don't think about that stuff, at least not our generation. And I think the generation behind us, the younger generation, I think they're much more educated. There's much more awareness and it's something they're cognizant of and there's something that they think about. And I think as, as because of that, there's not going to be as much of a tr- attraction to MMA as there is with our generation. I, I just I think contact sports in the future could could you know they could struggle. You know, there, there's a lot of kids that are into these esports and not just playing it, but actually watching it. I mean, there there's people that are making tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. By running a a my Minecraft channel on YouTube, and I I, Sam, and I people saw, just people just watch these guys play Minecraft on YouTube. I Sam, I someone sent me um, stats on Twitch that they have a hundred million uniques a month, and that's just people watching other people play video games. I I couldn't I was I was amazed by it I I just I, I was absolutely amazed by it. I'm guilty of it too. There's a not to get too off subject. We'll get back, right back on it. But there is a guy that has WWE 2K17, and there's like a there's a, I, th- I think it's called GM mode or story mode. Okay, and he'll do like ten to fifteen minute episodes of his own version of Monday Night Raw. And to me, what he's doing with his writing and scripting for his shows was way more interesting than what WWE is actually doing. And I'll watch them. By by the way, uh, cheap plug here for RadioInfluence.com. Starting on Monday, uh, June 26th, uh, Sitting Ringside with David Penzer will debut. Uh, and uh, I know, I believe he is scheduled to be joined by Justin Roberts on his first episode. So a little cheap plug there for Radio Influence. For, for the Justin fe- Roberts is... Uh, Pretty outspoken about his time with the WWE. <laughs> just, that, I, I'm going to be tuning in for that for sure. Yeah, just just a little outspoken. Before we get into the questions related to Bellator NYC, I, I wanted to pick your brain on something because I was thinking about this, and there's probably no one else better to really go to about this. Do you think there is similarities between Michael Chandler versus Brent Primus and to when Michael Chandler beat Eddie Alvarez to become the Bellator lightweight champion? Oh, absolutely. There are similarities, but there's also massive differences. I think that Mike was much more visible leading up to that fight, was much more active, you know, as opposed to Brent Primus. And I think Mike was closer to a finished product than Brent Primus is. I think Brent Primus, 
know, Zach Light brought him to Bellator. He signed him to Bellator and told us this guy is the next big thing. And, you know, we were really impressed early on. And then we were, you know, the opportunity to continue to work with him and promote him and develop him. That was, you know, taken away essentially, but he stayed on with the, the new regime and he just hasn't been kept as active. And I've always felt with young guys, especially guys that don't have a lot of experience, you need to have them fight every two months because they need the way they improve is by being in camps. That's one thing I learned from Zach Light is that's how young fighters get better quickly is by continually going through fight camps. Because if they're just training to train, they're not training with the same intensity. When they're locked into a fight, when they're signed into a fight and they're going into a camp that's built around getting them prepared to fight, their development is expedited. And I think Brent hasn't, for whatever reason, hasn't been that active. And, you know, that's my question is, you know, he's is he getting the development he needs and being pre- pressured and pushed in an intense enough environment that he'll be able to fight his best fight ever that we're going to see the best Brett premise that we've ever seen. And it's going to be a notch or two above the last time we've seen him fight with Chandler because he was kept so active. He couldn't take any time off. He couldn't go out of a camp or just train a couple times a week or just train for an hour, hour and a half a day. He was working out four to six hours a day, nonstop for months at a time. You know, and that's how a guy like that gets better. So I, I just think there are some differences, but there there are some, some some similarities. There is an opportunity for Brent Primus to come in and shut a lot of people up and and shock shock the world. Yeah, I think you know Brent's this will be his fourth fight in, in the last four years. He only fought once a year uh, the past couple of years. And I'll tell you a quick story about Brent Primus. When I was doing some writing for Bellator dot com. Uh, the initial premise of what they wanted me to do was basically about spotlighting guys on the preliminary card because you know they wanted to try to to get guys get fans interested in guys on the preliminary card and Brent Premise was one of the the ones on there except uh, then uh, the ultimate article got a uh, got a uh, got xed out because uh, basically Bjorn said no I just I want the articles to be about uh, the guys on the main card but uh, Brent was definitely somebody that I remember uh, being really? told yeah. He- Wow, yeah, they just went at main card. So, <laughs> uh, uh, all right. I, I, I've, I've, I mean, we, we, he was told, he was told by Zach Light that this is the next Mike Chandler. You would think that they'd want to get behind that and get as much attention for this guy for him as possible. That's that's. Not and, a- and the one thing I, because I, I, I've done countless interviews with Brent, he, he's he's done a lot of cross training. Yes, he does a lot of his training up there in Portland. Uh, but you know he goes down to Donald Cerrone's ranch. Um, he goes down to California. He does do a lot of cross training, but it, it, it's interesting. But to me, for that pay per view, uh, Douglas Lima versus Lorenz Larkin is uh, is is a fight that uh, is what's drawing me to the pay per view. And uh, Ben Askren will be in the house, so that that'll be interesting. Especially since Scott Coker has called uh, Douglas Lima the best welterweight in the world, which I understand why he's doing that because he's putting on his promoter hat. But we all know that that's definitely not the case. Uh, so let's get to uh, some of these questions about Bellator NYC. Um, first off, I want to start with George UFC. U- George one UFC fan because it's about. Uh, the pay-per-view buys. He says, what's your predictions on how many buys Bellator does this weekend and if the Connor Floyd announcement hurt business for them? I don't think it hurt their business. I, I The number I throw out there, I think realistically 125 to 150,000 buys. I'm at 170. Wow, you're, you're that high? 
I think there's going to be a lot of promotion this last week. I think that a lot of people that are saying that this isn't being properly promoted, there may not they may not be necessarily exposed to the promotion because how do you promote a pay-per-view in today's media environment? Media viewing is so segregated now. It's not, you know, before if you wanted to, you know, if you had a big budget and you wanted someone to know about your product or your event and you were like a, a big national level event, you just, you know, you could either go on network TV or you could do some basic cable advertising or you could do radio. Now it's all across the map. It's digital, but not just digital. It's streaming versus web versus social media versus text messaging. How do you reach your audience when it's so splintered and everyone's in different directions? If all you do is watch your TV via Hulu, you know, HBO Go and, 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 and Netflix – you know, and you're not tuned into any of the Viacom-owned media platforms, whether it be radio, TV, or billboards, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, for all we know, there could be heavy, massive promotion. I mean, if, you're, if your local Viacom, you know, affiliate, you know, whether it be CBS Radio or a former CBS Radio station, you know, if, if they were playing ads every 30 you know, every, you know, two minutes, but you, you don't listen to radio. How are you going to know that it's there? If you're not watching spike TV, if you're not watching the cops marathon on a Saturday and there's, they're playing ads every commercial break, how are you going to see it? If you're watching Netflix and you're not watching basic cable, how are you going to be exposed to the promotion? I mean, I, I, it's I, so hard to penetrate. It's, so it's got to get be out there. Some type of mobile, because I mean, you just look at that's just the way people view things now. You know, in terms of, you know, you look at the the, the site traffic in terms of you know how many people are, are looking at your content on on a you know a, a laptop, a computer device, as opposed to a tablet or or a, a, a phone. It's just it's amazing. I mean, I, I you know you know Scott Coker obviously is is very optimistic on his projections and. You know, for the state of MMA, I hope he's he's right on his projections. I just don't think that's that's likelihood. Um, but you know, we'll see. You know, is does there ultimately become a, a little bit of a, a buzz? You know, leading into this card on, on Saturday night, do uh, you know? Do you do you get any buzz for Bellator one eighty? You know, are, are people are are people going to be drawn that maybe are on the fence about whether they're going to buy the pay per view? I'm going to buy the pay per view, um, but uh, you know, it, it's I, I th definitely think there are some fans out there that just, you know, they're, they're just, they've already made that decision that they're not going to buy it. If I'm Scott Coker, I'm hoping something happens at weigh-ins, not something that crosses the line and puts the fight in jeopardy, but something that is newsworthy enough that ESPN and Fox Sports 1 have to run it on all their shows. Yeah, but no, that's, that's definitely a, a good point. Uh, next up from uh, Chris Conte, 20, actually, uh, let's go to this one first. Uh, at Andy Big Rocks 1, what does Bellator see in Goldie that the UFC doesn't? Does this further solidify Bellator as a number two promotion with no path to number one? I, I think that the Bellator for a long time has been, you know, the solid number two mixed martial arts promotion in here. Um, you know, you know, it, it's it when, you know, Goldberg had put out this little video of him, you know, reading, you know, some pre-production stuff and still kind of weird to think Mike Goldberg 
in Bellator, um, you know, look, yeah, ad- adding adding Mike Goldberg and Mauro Ronaldo is a massive improvement to their broadcasting team. It, it, it's it's a tremendous lineup. Um, you know, look, I, I'm you're not going to know how well it's going to work until they actually are in the booth there with Jimmy Smith. I mean, you can't just by putting people together. You can't. And this is me coming from my play by play experience. I've been in play by play since 2004. You just can't put people in the booth and think that it's automatically going to work. It's going to take time. And, uh, I'm honestly surprised Bellator waited this long to make a change. We had to wait till the right pieces were available. And, you know, with regard to Mike Goldberg and the question, what does the UFC, what does Bellator see in him that the UFC didn't? I don't know if it was necessarily, you know, performance related. From what I was told, the biggest issue with Mike Goldberg and the UFC was was money, that there was cost cutting going on across the board. And Goldberg was making a ton of money per show. And that was an area in which the UFC felt they could save some money. Now, look, we can talk about Mike Goldberg's performance, and you know, I hope he doesn't listen to this show because I don't have a lot of favorable things to say about his performance, but he seems like a, a nice guy. And let me tell you something, Jason. Between 2001 and 2005, maybe 2006, I mean, he was really, really good. I mean, he was on a different level and just was – I thought he was an amazing play-by-play announcer. And it was so good that the WWE came after him and tried to sign him to a huge money contract that he actually accepted. And then he heard some things about working with Vince McMahon and then, you know, came back to the UFC and they really upped their offer and they were more in line money wise with what he'd been offered by WWE. But between 2001, 2006, I mean, I thought he was incredible. And what what happened to him kind of reminds me of what happens. And I'm sure you you're you're aware of this and you know what I'm talking about and you'll get this analogy, Jason, cause you follow mainstream sports and you're working in broadcast, but you know, the, 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 the popular hometown announcer who is just, you know, in his prime, it becomes a local legend, but in his seventies and eighties, because he is who he is, is able to continue to, to do radio or do TV, but because he's aging is losing a little zip off his fastball. And that's kind of the analogy that I would liken things to for, for Mike Goldberg. He was losing a little bit of zip on his fastball every year, and he's not that old, which which so it surprised me. And I, you know, my biggest complaint about Mike Goldberg, and this may or may not be the case, but to me, at times in the last few years, he sounded detached from the product. He didn't sound anywhere near as passionate and educated and up on the background of the fighters as he did in years past. Because when you go back and you watch some of the shows that he did in 2001, 2006, between that period, one of the things that he was really good at that I that it was a skill that I don't even hear from him really anymore was he was a, he was a storyteller. He would tell mm-hmm. you a little bit of backstory about the fighter and you would feel like you got to know that guy, you know, and it, it was he all you know, he would tell, you know, tell you about you know, what the fighter did getting to that fight and what he was struggling with and what obstacles he had to overcome to get to that level. And he would always have good anecdotes, you know, little things that he would throw out there Mm -hmm. and introduce it. And that went away. You know, I don't know what happened. I don't know if the UFC just got too big and it was too many shows and too many fighters on the roster and it was just impossible for him to keep up and keep track of that. 
but he lost some zip on, on his fastball. Maybe he can get that back. Maybe coming over, working with a different production team in a different production environment, doing fewer shows, working with a smaller roster. Maybe there'll be more familiarity and just maybe it's a better fit for him. I know from a production standpoint, it's going to be much different for him working with Spike TV than he did with the UFC. One of the big differences that I was always told was that you know, Spike and, you know, and I saw it, you know, every week. And then I also was familiar with it, having worked at Showtime, seeing their environments. They do a lot of pre-production work. There's a lot of preparation that goes into the announcer's notes and getting them ready for the fights. And and they would, and especially with the pre-interviews, the day before weigh-ins, bringing all the guys in and having the announcers meet with them. And I saw it at Showtime. It was, it was commonplace. It, it was a standard. It was standard with Spike TV. And I was told that those interviews didn't necessarily take place for the UFC broadcast, that there wasn't pre-production uh, meetings, that there wasn't pre-interviews, that the, fi- that the commentators didn't necessarily sit down with the fighters uh, in a formal uh, fashion in a in a hotel conference room the day before the fight. Mike Goldberg's going to have to do that because that's how Spike does their broadcast. They're 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 very prepared. They take a lot of pride in their work. And, and so Mike's going to, you know, have an opportunity to sit down with those fighters, come in, ask them questions, as many questions as he wants, find out what changes they've made to their camps, who's going to be in their corner, you know, what's different from their preparation for this fight as opposed to the last He's going to be forced to, to get all that information. And one thing that he'll have as a tremendous resource is a guy by the name of Corey Brady. You know, and, and if you've followed my career at all in Five Ounces of Pain, you know, Corey was a guy that you know came into the site and, and started working with me and was a, a, an integral part of keeping Five Ounces of Pain alive. So much so that you know, I made him and David Andrus, who also helped keep the site alive, made them part owners. Their contributions were that important. And you know, when, when I got a job with Bellator, Corey was a guy that I recommended they, they talk to because Corey was working for me also as an assistant from for my notes and, and the preparation I did for Showtime. And he did a great job. And when uh, I was told that Bellator was looking for someone like that, I, I mentioned Corey and they interviewed Corey and Corey got the gig and he's been there ever since. So, you know, Corey is going to be an asset to Mike Goldberg. And we'll be there to help him with research and, you know, maybe tell him about the history of Bellator and some of the Bellator brand specific fighters. You know, Corey will be there. So hopefully Mike relies on Corey as an asset, Um, you know, and, I, you know, I don't know how much preparation Mike does on his own. But, you know, even the even the guys that are the most prepared and the best guys like Mauro Ronaldo and Sean Wheelock, who were obsessive compulsive almost when it came to getting details and preparing for fights, even they worked with other people and got notes and, and, and you know, information. So hopefully, you know, Mike uses Corey as an asset and, and really, you know, maybe get some of that fire back. And, you know, he, if he's listening to this, he probably might take issue with the fact that I'm saying that, you know, it didn't sound like he had fire last couple of years for UFC fights, but that's just my honest assessment. And I, I just think that this could be a better environment for him. I just think the UFC maybe had gotten too big and there was just too much, too many shows and it was hard to keep track of everything. I also think having Morrow there is going to kind of, you know, that, that competitive fire I think should light up into him having Morrow there. I mean, look, it's a, it's a, it's an improvement. We'll we'll see how it, how it works, uh, you know, starting uh, this, this Saturday with Bellator NYC. Uh, Next up from Chris Conley 27 goes, when do you think Bellator's next pay-per-view will be? And who do you think will be on it? Fedor title fight, Rory versus welterweight champion, Chuck's debut. First off, please no Chuck Liddell. Please no Chuck Liddell. I, I hope there's someone around Chuck Liddell that, that talks some sense into him. 
Yeah, and I hope, you know, Scott Coker isn't really seriously considering that because Chuck Liddell was essentially forced to retire, and he was forced to retire for a reason. You know, Mm -hmm. Dana White, his close personal friend, was concerned. There was enough concern that Chuck wasn't the same fighter, that, you know, he didn't have the chin that he once had, and he was taking too many knockouts, and it was going to affect him later on in life if he continued to do that. And, you know, Chuck isn't younger now. Isn't any, you know, it's not like you get younger in life. So he, this, this was years ago that he retired. He suddenly isn't going to have a stronger equilibrium. He isn't going to strong, uh, suddenly have a stronger chin. He's going to be more susceptible to damage your, your brain. You know, when you get older, you, you get more susceptible to, to, to damage, you know, at least that's my theory. So there, there's no reason to have Chuck come back. It's if one promotion who the promoter, the the head promoter, uh, you know, the guy in charge of that promotion, who's friends with the fighter, takes one of his best assets and puts him on the sidelines because he's worried about his health. That doesn't mean that you should necessarily go and turn around and, and put that guy in your cage. Yeah, I, I think that's that's all through the the big telling point. Uh, with that one, um, you know, in terms of the next pay per view, it wouldn't surprise me if they tried to do one towards maybe November uh, of this year try to go there um you know i think roy mcdonald versus the winner of lorenz larkin douglas lima obviously makes a a ton of sense for that pay-per-view uh we'll, we'll see what happens with fedor on, on saturday night personally sam i think matt mitrione's gonna knock him out yeah first round i i just i i think that matt matt's going by the way if you as a guy if you listen to matt mitrione's interview with ariel hawani that was just painful to listen to hear him talk about what he went through with the uh the kidney stones <laughs> Just painful. I've had them. Yeah, I've had them. It's it's. Uh, I, I, you know, I know a female. She's given birth and she's had kidney stones, and uh, she said she will choose birth over kidney stones any day of the week. Yeah, you know, in terms of you know fights you'd want to see on that pay per view. I mean, look, you, you have to look at the biggest names on their roster and what ultimately is going to get people to to want to to want to fork over money. You know, um, you know, I, I, Michael Page is someone I, I would I would venture at. You know, but, uh, you know, I, I think two to three pay-per-views is probably kind of the number they would go at for an amount of pay-per-views in a calendar year. Kind of taking a step aside here, maybe a little off topic, but not too much off topic. Do you think this pay-per-view has been hurt by the fact that Bellator didn't do a lot of live shows leading up to this? I mean, they, they've they been pretty quiet mm. leading up to this. I, they, they had the Rory McDonald fight versus Paul Daly, but that was a tape delay show. didn't get a big rating. You know, maybe they should have done a show last weekend or the weekend before. Would that, do you think that would have made a difference? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, maybe if you would have put the, I, I, I do, I, I don't know. It's a pet peeve of mine. I hate that they're calling this two different events. Like, no, it's one, it's one just long event. Well, let's not call it two fight cards. It's one long that, event, but that, I can give you some insight on that. That could be for contractual purposes because they their international TV deals. Sometimes, the way the contracts are written, you have to give them a certain number of shows per year. So by splitting it up into two, I think maybe from a legal perspective, they're able to exercise two different shows on their contract. Because if you prom- if you sign a, a deal with an international distributor and you promise them 16 shows you have to give them 16 shows you can't give them 14 you can't give them 15 you've got to give them 16 so by splitting it up maybe that it's 
being done for legal reasons. I don't should, know. I, this one just came to my head. Should they have done Bellator 180 on Friday night, maybe inside the theater? The problem with that is, you know, does, does Viacom have enough money pumping into Bellator to have enough marketing resources to promote two events so close together? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think what you bring up, it, it's it's a, a valid argument in terms of, of not having events. Has it hurt? I mean, my I've heard the ticket sales is somewhere in the seven eight thousand range, so they've done nice at the, at the box office there, and they'll get and they'll get a big walk up. They'll they'll do pretty well. So I I, I don't think attendance is going to be a huge issue, and you know the prices probably aren't cheap. It's New York, and it's it's expensive to do a show, so you've got to have a high ticket price. Uh, a couple more questions we got on this. Uh, it's a pair of questions from George, one UFC fan. He says, with so many big names and big salaries for this Bellator pay-per-view, what will the number, what will the number need to be to, to break even? And if they don't break even or make a profit, do you see that putting them putting on another pay-per-view soon? We've kind of talked about, you know, we do see them going to pay-per-view. Uh, in terms of, I mean, look, the, the salaries are going to be very large for this pay-per-view. It's it just it with Shell, Vanderlei. Uh, and it's expensive to do a show in New York. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's it just, crazy. It just every, Union call and, and the, the, the rent, it's going to be insane. Yeah, there's so many. I You know, without knowing how much their expenses are for this, I, I can't really say what is the amount of buys they need to break even because you don't know what their expenses are in, in terms of this. And, you know, may, maybe the goal is just to break even on this, on this show. I don't think they'll break even. I think they'll lose some money on this show, but I think they anticipate that. I think that this isn't a one-off for them. I think it's the start of, an, of a concentrated campaign in which they're going to be committed to making a name for themselves in pay-per-view and establishing, establishing themselves as a pay-per-view brand because pay-per-view in certain ways is dying, but the the actual distributors and the, the business model itself still exist. And these pay-per-view distributors they want properties that they can promote and develop so they can keep their cash cow alive. And with the possibility of the UFC doing fewer shows in the future based on a potential new TV deal that would require higher profile shows, more of their uh, more fights being on, you know, FS1 and Fox and fewer shows on pay-per-view that could make Bellator really attractive as a property to these pay-per-view distributors that don't want to let go, that aren't ready to, you know, turn to new entertainment options and, and, and the new way of media that they're going to do everything they can to keep their cash cow alive. So if UFC, you know, boxing isn't what it is, you know, there are very few big boxing draws. I mean, Mayweather's coming out to do this fight against, you know, McGregor, but who knows what happens after that. UFC could do fewer shows. WWE really isn't on pay-per-view anymore. So, you know, someone like Bellator, they're, they're, they're probably pretty excited that Bellator is getting back into the pay-per-view game. And I think Bellator is going to get a lot of support from the pay-per-view distributors. Next up, uh, George asks, he says, one of Scott Coger's first event as president of Bellator, he went head-to-head with UFC 188. Why hasn't they countered another pay-per-view since, and why didn't the UFC return this weekend? Instead, they are going on Sunday instead of Saturday, which I think is a big mistake on their part. The reason the UFC is on Sunday as opposed to Saturday is because there is a NASCAR race on FS1, so you know, you're not going to put a... A, a UFC main card on FS2. So that that's why they're going on Sunday here. Um, 
That's you know, but you know, and, and I think in terms of going on the same day of a UFC event, if you're Bellator, I just I ultimately think that's just not a, not a smart idea. And I don't think that the UFC has the animosity towards Bellator that they once did when Bjorn Rebney was in charge. I know that Bjorn was someone that they didn't think very highly of, that some of the things that had happened, you know, from a legal perspective and just some of the things that happened from a public public perspective, they did not like Bjorn one bit. And I know that when Scott Coker got hired, that the UFC reached out and congratulated Spike on their choice. And I think a lot of the animosity went away because things are really ramping up. After we did that first pay-per-view, the UFC started to really put us in their crosshairs. And I know that they announced the date to go head-to-head with us in Mohegan. That was, you know, that that announcement came down way before, not way before, but before Scott Coker uh, had been, you know, installed in, in a power position in Bellator when it was just Bjorn. That, you know, you know, because we'd gone over it in the pay-per-view and once the number got out that we had done over 100,000 buys, because that was the UFC cash cow, that that pay-per-view market, that 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 market share was so important to them. And it's what made them unique as a sports property that once we did over 100,000, they started to take us more seriously and they didn't like Bjorn and they were going to go for the throat and we were ready for it. And then all of a sudden Bjorn was out and that was it. And Coker came in and I think that they had a, a, a good working relationship with Coker and a lot of those plans to come after Bellator. I think a lot of those were diffused and, uh, you know, I, I think the animosity just wasn't there and the desire to kind of come in and crush us kind of fell by the wayside. But now that Bellator is getting back into pay-per-view and that's the UFC's holy grail is pay-per-view. That's the cash cow. That's what makes them so valuable as a property is that they generate so much money via pay-per-view when no other sports property can and will. Anything that can threaten that, suddenly they will take Bellator more seriously if they come in and do a big buy rate. If they perceive to be, if they perceive Bellator to be a threat to their pay per view business, then we could see another war break out between the two groups. Uh, also, a couple of questions uh, really related to the fights. Uh, first off, Lex Jansen two says Fedor versus Lovsky two in Bellator at the end of the year. I would first off say uh, would not be surprised by that. Also, Dirty Bird two one two asks is Lint Vassell getting a towel shot regardless who wins Saturday. <laughs> Or is Mo because he was supposed to fight Bader? Uh, I expect Lint Vassell to get the next title matchup. I, I, let me ask you on, on Phil Davis and, and Ryan Bader. Both these guys are on flat fee deals, and Matt Mitrione made the case that he believes that when you have fighters who are on flat fee flat fee deals, that ultimately they are not going to fight cautious and they're going to put on more of a show. Would you agree with that statement? No, I think when fighters have the second half of their paycheck in a state of purgatory, I think they feel more pressure. I think they feel more stress. And I think in a lot of cases, when you have a fighter, that's a legitimate warrior. That's a fighter. When they feel that stress, when they feel that pressure, when they, they have already spent that second half of that money, because that's, you know, they, they have no other choice, you know, that, that month they need that, win bonus to pay off bills and, and to get them through the next three months until their next fight. It's like putting a guy backing him in the corner. And when you do that to a fighter, you know, the average person, you back them into the corner, they, they, they keel over and they turtle up, but you put a fighter in a corner and they come out and they, they come out like an animal. And I think that, you know, a lot of these guys, when they get some financial security, 
they're just not the same fighter. I mean, look at Ben Henderson. I, you know, he his initial run in Bellator has not been overly impressive. I think he's a much different fighter than the guy that I watched in the UFC. And I'm not sure if that's because it's just his age or changes he's made to his camp. But I, I, my theory is that, you know, not getting a win bonus, having your money guaranteed up front, that changes the way you approach things. And uh, we'll see how this uh, this fight card goes down. As uh, By the way, just a little cheap plug. Coming on Friday, I'll have a preview podcast uh, for that event. Also, the UFC fight card on Sunday. Uh, by the way, speaking of the UFC fight card, were you like me and shocked that BJ Penn is the opening fight of the main card? I just should be. I mean, I I'm flabbergasted, Jason, because to me the real issue shouldn't be where in the card that BJ Penn is fighting. It should be why is he even still fighting? That's very, very well true. Very well true. Um, you know, um, one of the stories that came out over this weekend was the ultimate passing of Tim Haig. And um, first off, there's been a lot of great reporting uh, from uh, Mike Russell over at realfightstories.com uh, about this situation. And there's there's so many uh, you know questions and, and, and topics uh, about this. And, and I think that the first, you know, really all, all the questions right now are, have to be at Pat Reed and, and the Edmonton Commission of when you look at their bylaws, Tim Haig should not even been licensed to fight. I I have a feeling at some point we're going to see a massive lawsuit against the Edmonton Commission. Well, first and foremost, our thoughts and prayers go out to, to Tim Haig's family. I mean, this is a tragic loss. It's a loss that should not have happened. Also, while we're on the somber subject, our thoughts and prayers should go out to Matt Hughes and the mm-hmm. family of Matt Hughes. You know, he's uh, got a difficult road ahead of him. Uh, you know, thankfully, he's, you know, you know, he didn't lose his life in that accident and you know, he's still still with us. You know, nothing but the best go out to him. And our prayers are with him to make a full and speedy recovery. But with regard to Tim Haig, Jason, I watched the fight this morning and I was furious. Yes, there were major failures in protocol from the pre-licensing perspective, from the administration standpoint of, you know, Tim Haig being given a license. And like you said, if you read the actual bylaws, if the city commission had actually followed their own rules they wouldn't have been able to license tim Haig in a boxing match until april 2018 mm-hmm. because if you get ko'd or tko'd three in three consecutive fights that's it you're, you're you have to take a year off you cannot be licensed for a year and they ignored their own regs but beyond the administrative standpoint leading up to the fight watching the fight itself tim Haig was once again failed multiple times the referee failed him That fight, after that second knockdown, should have been stopped. But where was the ringside physician? And more importantly, Jason, where were his corner people? Mm -hmm. Did Tim Haig even have corner people there that night? And if he did, did they even know him? Because if they knew Tim Haig and they actually had a shred of caring for him, they would have thrown in that towel after the first round. They never would have let him come out. Never should have let him come out after the first round because it was so obvious that he was so overmatched. I mean, Adam Braidwood did his job. You can't blame him. I mean, he was put in that position. The promoter made a fight, and he went out and did his job. But he was so much more dominant than Tim Haig. I mean, Tim Haig was going for takedowns, and he wasn't intentionally going for takedowns, in my opinion. He was going for takedowns instinctively 
because his body, his brain knew he was in trouble because he had trained MMA for so long. His muscle memory as a defense mechanism, that kind, you kind of get that built into your instinctive nature that when you're in a fight and you get hit hard, your, your nature from a self-defense standpoint is to drop down and grab a leg. And, you know, I don't think he was going for takedowns intentionally. I think that that was just a mechanism in his brain activating because his body knew and his brain knew that he was in trouble. And once the referee saw an MMA fighter who was one and two going against an eight and one professional boxer, once he saw that fighter go for takedowns, fight should have been called right then and there. And, you know, as I mentioned, we had so many great questions. And I would tell you this. I thought this was the best question that we received. And this was from Matt Dwayne Barth. And he wrote this. He says, of the multiple system failures that sadly contributed to the catastrophic mishap and the death of Tim Haig, can Sam give expertise on the emergency medical coverage slash response planning that athletic commissions should be implementing? I thought, Sam, I thought this was by far the best question we got this week. Well, the, first off, there you know, it's every commission that's a real commission, they have a ringside physician, and typically they have more than one. And then you are required by regulations to have at least one ambulance with a group of licensed EMTs present. And in some cases, we were in you know certain states, they require you to have two. Um, and sometimes we were able to get around that requirement if we were within a certain mile radius of a hospital. Like, for instance, Atlantic City, we were for some of our events, we were right down the street. So if. You know, the requirement was to have two, but we'd have one there stationed there. And then we would have, you know, a direct line to the actual emergency room in the hospital right down the street. And that sometimes counted as our second ambulance. But most states, they require you to have two. And if uh, in states where there was only one, if one had to take someone, uh, take a fighter to the hospital and there was no ambulance station there, the, the, the show had to stop. So that's typically why even in some, certain places where we weren't required to have two, we had two anyway. So this way the show can continue in the event that someone, you know, was, was in an ambulance being treated at a hospital. So, you know, there, there's ringside physicians, there's EMTs, there's ambulances with life support right, you know, in the ambulance on, on site. Um, you know, as far as the actual, you know, medical coverage, you know, there are requirements for comprehensive insurance, especially at a national level. And I know with Bellator, and I'm sure it's the case with the UFC and probably even World Series of Fighting, what you go above and beyond the state requirement. So the major national promotions that can afford it, they get comprehensive emergency and long-term medical care for a fighter. God forbid a, a, a long-term injury were to occur, typically they're going to have very, very high levels of coverage for that fighter. So from a promotional standpoint, you know, the the commissions have those requirements and they stick to those requirements. I look for on a, on a, not at a national level, but there were shows that I did on a regional level and the shows didn't start on time because the, the ambulance didn't show up, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the commission didn't care how much money we had invested in the show until that ambulance got there. We weren't going to start the show. And if we couldn't get an ambulance there, there was going to be no show. So, you know, they, they, most commissions are very strict. What happened in Edmonton, and because it's not a provincial commission, it's not done by province. So I guess in Edmonton, it's done by cities. It's just a very backwoods, shoddy commission. And the, the thing that, you know, I guess we're not going to get a thorough investigation if Pat Reed is overseeing it. But the thing that I want to know, what is the promoter's relationship with the executive director of that commission? Mm-hmm. 
was there, you know, a, a, a relationship there where things were overlooked in order to help that promoter make a fight that that promoter wanted to make? And did the referee feel a certain way about letting that fight go on so that the promoter and the people that had a financial investment in Adam Braidwood so that they could get a highlight, a highlight re- uh, level real, pardon me, I'm flopping my words here, but a highlight reel level knockout of Adam Braidwood over a, a former UFC fighter. Was that the impetus? Was that the motive in allowing that fight to continue? I mean, I, I want to know what the relationship is with the promoter and that commission because, you know, to me, it seems very nefarious the way certain regulations that would have protected and certain systems that were in place that would have protected Tim Haig and prevented this tragedy from ever happening, why they were thrown by the wayside. Yeah, there's uh, going to be a lot of questions. And, you know, Mike Russell and Eric McCracken are, are doing an excellent job covering this story. And, uh, you know, this story is long from being done. And, um, you know, the other thing I think of, if you're Adam Braidwood, how do you move forward with your career? It's tough, but Adam Braidwood didn't do anything wrong. All he did that night was his job. And, you know, you talked about a massive lawsuit. I think that's a given, you know, and I know that there's a waiver that the boxers have to sign there that would prevent such a lawsuit. But there was such negligence involved that I don't think that waiver is going to hold up very well. And I could be wrong because I'm not a legal expert and I know even less about the Canadian legal system than I do about the U.S. legal system. But to me, that would suggest that that waiver that would prevent the family and estate of Tim Haig going after the commission, you know, the fact that they ignore their own regulations in licensing that fight, that to me says that that waiver is not going to hold up very well. And forget about just the lawsuit. I think there should be criminal charges filed against the regulators of that event. Tim Haig should still be alive. Tim Haig wanted to listen to this show. He should be in a position where he could listen to this show. He is not someone who is no longer on this earth that, you know, he should still be here. You know, that, that, that death could have easily been prevented. Tim Haig should still be among us. Let me ask you this, because we got a question. It was more about wanting our thoughts, but this came from Andy. And let me get, you know, he asked about, you know, what action can be taken, steps to protect fires returning quickly from uh, from a, a knockout defeat. For you as a matchmaker, did you have, I mean, obviously you had, you know, what the, the medical suspension were, but how did you handle it and what was the appropriate time to book a guy after he had been knocked out? It depends on the knockout. And, you know, there were certain guys that Bjorn and I would be concerned about. And, you know, a lot of people are going to be surprised to hear that Bjorn, there was, you know, Bjorn was responsible when it came to that stuff. And there were certain guys that we tried to get to retire, you know, and, and some of those guys, if they're listening to the show, if they want to come out and, and, and reveal that, you know, they, they, they're more than welcome to do that. You know, I know that one guy that I will name publicly, um, you know, I hope he doesn't get upset, but, you know, we let Travis, Travis view go because Travis, you know, had been fighting for so long. He had some knockouts on, on, you know, on his record and was cutting so much weight that 
you know, he was going into fights dehydrated and that makes you more susceptible to head trauma. And I, I know that Bjorn was really worried about Travis view. He did not, you know, it got to a point where we were just, we, we could no longer comfortably promote him because we liked him as a person. We didn't want to see anything bad happen to him. You know, we couldn't get him to retire. That's, you know, his choice. That's his option. But, you know, we made a decision that we were no longer going to facilitate, you know, and, 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 be on that that end and help him, uh, you know, enable him. And there's just certain guys that, you know, we would get worried about. And there are certain guys that I would, you know, say, hey, Bjorn, what about this guy? And, you know, should we sign him? And, you know, Bjorn said, you know, you know, no, you know, it's, the guy's been knocked out too much. He's too old. We can't, you know, we, we can't do that. Um, so it's, you know, frequency of knockouts, degree of knockouts, you know, how hard a guy goes down, how hard he gets hit. And how close they are, you know, anytime you see guys getting knocked out two, three consecutive times in a row in their fights, that's when you really have to worry about it. And then, you know, you have to really be cognizant of the person's, I wouldn't say behavior, but just you have to observe them. Mm. You know, there's just certain guys that we would be around and, you know, older fighters. And I don't want to name names, but guys that didn't even hadn't necessarily ever competed for us. The guys that we knew just from being around their fights, you know, we saw a deterioration slowly in their speaking skills. They would slur their words, you know, not every word, but, you know, certain words they'd start to slur some of their motor skills, you know. And I think I've mentioned a couple of the guys, Jason, that I, I was worried about and still am worried about. Um, you know, you see those guys and those guys come up to you and they ask you for fights. And it's tough telling them no because they are legends and they, they made sacrifices. And the sport is where they where it is today because of the sacrifices of a lot of those guys. But from a human perspective, if you if you're a human with with a conscience, you, you can't as bad as those guys may need some money, you can't put them in there. And and we didn't, you know, and that's that's you know, you, you just hope that promoters are responsible and they have some ethics and they, and I'm not trying to be self-righteous. You know, I, I'm the guy that, you know, made some of those early Mike Chandler fights and God knows that, that they were lopsided. And, you know, we had a fight it was between Brian Eckstein and Tulio Quintanilla. And, you know, Brian was winning that fight, but he'd cut so much weight and then got, you know, lost the end and got knocked out and, you know, hasn't been the same since, you know, and that, that was a, a guy that we thought at one point we might lose, you know, a, a guy that we thought was going to potentially, you know, either die or, you know, lose their life from activity in our cage, you know, and we, we, that was a wake up call for, for a lot of us. So you just hope that, you know, promoters have to make money, they have to make business decisions, but you hope that at the end of the day, their compassion for humanity overrides that. Uh, before we get out of here on this episode of the podcast, I do want to get into uh, some other uh, questions that we did get uh, in various other topics. So we'll try to get through these kind of here quick. Uh, first up from Andy says, why do MMA events last so long in a time poor era? era why do major promoters insist on six plus hour long events? Uh, I think first part of this TV plays into this when you got to, you know, you have commercial times, whatnot. Um, I, I know I've talked to regional promoters and they say you, you really don't want an event that lasts more than four hours. You don't, but these events that do last more than four hours, the easy answer to this is ticket sellers. Mm -hmm. They need to fit. It costs a lot of money to rent out a venue, pay the commission fees and get the insurance. And it's like throwing a, a, a gigantic wedding. And the only way you can make that money back is by ticket sellers. And, you know, you could, if you have a big venue and you've got a big nut to, to, uh, you know, 
to, to, to carry, then you got to, you know, you put a guy that sells 50 here, a guy that sells 100 there, and you just got to, you know, add them. You got to stack them. And sometimes you can get to that magic number for attendance that, that you need to break even by just, you know, doing, you know, eight to 10 fights. But that rarely happens in this day and age. And sometimes you got to do 12, 14. Hell, you know, I've got some friends in New England, uh, you know, in Maine, the, the NEF, they'll do fights that, uh, 20, 24 fights on a, on a given show, you know, and because the, they've got to get as many ticket sellers onto their card as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's, in a nutshell, why you have such long shows. They actually just had a show this past weekend where uh, it was a hybrid boxing and MMA show. Actually, had Bruce Boynton in, in a boxing matchup. Uh, next up, from Add a Few Words with ES, he says, UFC just stripped Jermaine Day or Monome for not fighting Cyborg. Is Mighty Mouse next for not fighting Dillashaw? And will the whole flyweight division go with him? Um, you know, look, first off, when you read that statement, first off, TJ Dillashaw is not a top challenger at, at, at 125, so it would be a little bit of the issue there. I, I, look, I don't blame the U, the UFC for, for stripping Jermaine Deiramondome. I understand why they did it, because at the end of the day, if you're in the women's 145-pound vi- business, that means you're in the Chris Cyborg business at the end of the day. Plus, the, you know, the biggest issue I had with, with Deiramondome and, and, you know, was – her camp told two different narratives as to why they weren't going to fight Cyborg. First, it was personal issues. You know, she wasn't ready. She, there's something going on in her life. They kept claiming a hand injury, too. And then it was hand injury. But then it was, oh, Cyborg's a cheater. We're not going to fight her because she's a cheater. But then they're taking on the role of promoter and commission. Because, you know, now you have USADA. The testing is there. And it's very frequent. And it's pretty aggressive. So if you're going to fight in the UFC, then you've got to trust their system. You've got to trust the process. And if you're not, then don't fight in the UFC. But as long as you're a part of it and they're investing millions upon millions of dollars in drug testing, then you can't use that as an excuse. I'm not going to fight this person because I think they're on juice. And I believe statistically speaking, I believe Cyborg's one of the most tested fighters. Right. I mean, that and that because that's USADA does a good job of that. If you once you're flagged. You're, you're pretty much marked for life if you're in that program. So she's going to be heavily tested, more heavily tested than, than most of the fighters. So what are you really worried about? You know, and, and changing your narrative two to three different times as to why you don't fight someone, that just really exposes you and makes you look bad. If you're going to use an excuse, if you're going to tell a narrative, make sure it's consistent because maybe some people will buy into it. But when you keep changing your story, everyone questions it. Uh, next up, uh, in relation to women's 145, this comes from at B Abraham 1988. Does it make sense for the UFC to have a women's 145 pound division or should they just cut their losses and let Cyborg go to Bellator? I don't think they should just let Cyborg go to Bellator, but to me, the only reason you, and I, I've, I've alluded this multiple times, you're just in a women's 145 pound business because of Cyborg, because look, Bellator has been trying to create a women's 145 pound division and, and they have struggled. I disagree with you a little bit. I'm going to tell you that I think Megan Anderson could be a star at 145 for the UFC. I don't know if she's ready for this fight. I don't know if she's 100% ready now, but I think she has a bright future ahead of her. No, I I definitely agree with that. I just think at this point, I, I thought it made a lot of sense for her to have another fight in Victa, grow a little bit more, and then you know maybe have this fight in six, nine months from now as opposed to right now. But also the th- another thing to consider, how good 
is Cyborg because we haven't seen her fight a lot. How good is she in the USADA testing age? You know, we know how good, you know, Cyborg was pre-USADA. But can she retain a high level of skill with all this testing? That's that's the big question mark. And uh, I mean, will you know, it impact her performance? We've seen a lot of guys, Jason, fall off the face of the earth. You know, one guy I'm going to name, and I don't, I'm not saying anything, but, you know, he hasn't been the same since USADA. That's Eric Silva. Doesn't look the same, doesn't fight the same, completely different guy. There, We've seen a, a lot, lot of guys. fighters you can say that about. Right. So is that going to impact Cyborg? I don't know. I, you know, and uh, I think the other part of it is with that event being in California, will the weigh-in protocols that are now in effect with the California State Athletic Commission, how much of an effect does that have on Cyborg? Don't count Megan Anderson out. That's a great point, Jason. You know, that's a very good point. The, the, you know, everyone's saying, oh, 145 is her natural weight class for Cyborg. Well, I've been around her. I, I You know, when she fought for Showtime, I got to see her up close. She struggled to make 145. 145 is not an easy cut for her. No, it's not. And and with these, you know, additional, you know, restrictions with regard to weight cutting, you know, I I wouldn't count Megan Anderson out of this fight, Jason. No, no, definitely should not be counted out. Uh, next up from uh, at Ian Bain MMA, he says, has the UFC got the booking of BJ Penn right this time this weekend? I I think they have clearly gotten the the fight booking correct. They shouldn't be booking BJ Penn. And why is BJ Penn still fighting? I thought he came from a rich family. I thought he had money. Why is he still doing this? I, he has nothing. He has nothing left to prove. He is one of my favorite fighters of all time, but I do not want to see him fight again. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know, you know, it's it's probably going to come to a sad end. You know, I mean, I mean, we saw what happened. You know, back in January with Yair Rodriguez, which was a fight. I just had no idea why the UFC made that fight, but this is a fight that should have been made. Uh, Lex Jansen two asked, do we think Saki gets a top 15 opponent in his first fight? Would like to see him against Alir Latifi. Uh, Gokan Saki should not fight a top 15 guy in his first nope. MMA fight. Nope. And that would be a big, big mistake by the UFC. They've got something that could potentially be heavily marketable. He's unique. He's a very impressive and entertaining striker. Develop him slowly. You talk about massive mistakes. I don't know if you saw this. This came down a little before we started recording. So Sage Northcutt lost his opponent um, for UFC 214. He is now fighting John McDessie. I don't know what the UFC is doing with, with Sage Northcutt because clearly they're not trying to build this kid up. I think it's a good fight stylistically. Ugh. McDessie is, is a karate guy just like Northcutt. He that, is, man, but I don't know if that would be the fight I would, you know, but I'd put here's him in. the. Th- Here's the thing. I mean, you can only drop the bar so low. There, there, you can only go so low if you're the UFC. You know, it's it's the best fighters in the world. So what do you do? Do you start bringing guys in off the street just to fight Sage Northcutt? There's only so many optimum matchups for Sage Northcutt at this stage of his UFC career. They're going to have to, you know, either he's going to have to sink or swim at a certain point. And you know, he may have to do a situation where he takes time off and comes back through the ultimate fighter or gets involved with the the uh, Tuesday night fight series. I mean, he's, you know, John McDessie's not a top contender, Jason. He's not. No, no, not at this point. I just, I, you know, this is a, I think he's got a tougher fight with John McDessie than, than but, he But does who, who, who what, what are the other options? If, if you're Sean Shelby, if you're Mick Maynard, 
and you've got to find a replacement opponent. What what are the options? Because if you go out and you sign a guy off the street that's never fought in the UFC, then you're going to get killed. I mean, you're just going to get slammed on social media. It's going to look bad. It's not going to do it. Uh, Sage Northcutt any favors. It's, it's not like a Bellator situation where you've got a guy that you want to develop, you want to build up, you can maybe get away with signing a guy that's never fought in your promotion. That's, you know, uh, a regional guy, you know, like some of the stuff they do when they go to Connecticut, you know, you, you can't do that. You're the UFC. So they're very limited. They're boxed in what they can do as far as a, a matchmaking perspective for, for Sage Northcutt. He's just going to have to get better. Yeah, no, and and all signs to point he'll be at uh, Team Alpha Male. Uh, Chris Connie asks, he says, if we had to build UFC's next MSG card, who would it be with? No Connor, assume Jones beats DC, Jones Gus, GSP Bisping. Uh, GSP Bisping obviously makes a ton of sense. Jones being on on that fight card makes makes a ton of sense as well. Um, you know, you have to put the you know the biggest stars you possibly can. No, I agree. I mean, they not a lot of money matchups for pay per view for the UFC. They're gonna have to figure some things out. Uh, let's end uh, the podcast on this note. Uh, this was actually a question we got from Andy. Asked if I would be joining the MMA JA. Interesting your thoughts on this and whether it is for you or not. Now, I, I did. I, I think at this point, I have more questions than than I know about the, the journalism association. Um, I think my view of the relationship between a promotion and a journalist has definitely changed over the years, and and I think a lot of that is is being around a, a NFL team for as long as I have been. I I think I see some things differently. Um, you know, reading their constitution, there is a, a yearly annual fee. I'd I'd want to know what what that annual fee is, and, and ultimately is 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 what does that annual fee go towards? Um, you know, this is something that you, you've heard about in the past. Um. But I guess ultimately the question is, and and I kind of use this in business all the time, what's the end game of, of a journalism association? It's a good question. I do think that Dan Stupp is, is the right guy to lead this association. I have a ton of respect for him, just this level of, of integrity, just his experience. I mean, he's been on both sides of the coin. You know, he's he's worked for the Reds in a PR capacity, and, and he's been a journalist himself. And, you know, when he was in those roles, he did not mix the two. I mean, when he worked for the Reds, he worked for the Reds, and he was, you know, PR. When he was, you know, the editor of Junkie, and I believe he still is the editor of Junkie, but, he you know, he worked for Junkie. He was a journalist. He didn't cross paths with the promotions as far as, you know, being a extended PR vehicle for them. So, you know, this is a guy with tremendous integrity. And if there's anyone that I would pick to lead this association, he's the guy. Now, the question I have, Jason, you know, a lot of people are saying that, you know, one one aspect in which this will help journalists is if, you know, they're in a situation similar to Ariel Hawani last year where he was kicked out of the event uh, and, you know, had his credentials pulled and was essentially banned because he reported some news that maybe UFC didn't want out there with regard to Brock Lesnar. You know, now there's a mechanism and a way for a, a grieved journalist to, to go through the association and maybe get some due process with the promotion. But is it going to work the other way? If the promotion feels that there's something going on with a journalist or that journalist's outfit that is amiss, is there the, the, the two-way street for them to go to the association and have gr- their grievance heard? You know, I was in a situation. I wasn't in a position of power at the time. But I felt and still feel that I was very wronged by Mark Ramondi's reporting with MMA fighting with regards to the Frodo Kozbalayev situation. You know, I felt that, you know, it was a 
totally fake news story. It was completely untrue. And proof was furnished to discredit, completely prove the claims either made by Frodo or someone on his management team using his social media account that the claims made were 100% false. There was no truth to them, and, and, and proof was furnished. It was shown to, the, to MMA fighting. It was shown to a couple people there, and they went with the story anyway. And not only did they go with the story, they, they printed a follow-up subsequently, you know, a, a month or so later. And, you know, it was completely, you know, it was total lies. It was a story based on lies. And, you know, what was my recourse? Because it did a lot of damage to my reputation. I took a lot of heat for it, for something that wasn't true. If it was something that I had done, then, you know, I have to be held accountable for it. And I just had to deal with it. But for something that I didn't do, and it wasn't even a gray area. It was black and white. It didn't happen. You know, there was no recourse for me to go through. There was no one for me to contact. My only option was to sue for, you know, was to sue. Was to sue Frodo Cosbalive or whoever was behind that tweet and, you know, whoever was necessarily the source giving MMA fighting this false information. But why did they decide after this information was proven false? Why did they decide to, to call attention to the story? You know, was it because someone was feeding that from, you know, Frodo's management group had an axe to grind and they were feeding this information or maybe they were in a situation where they overpromised and underdelivered to Frodo and they needed someone to take a fall. So they picked a couple guys that, you know, were no longer in a position of power. You know, you know what it, it wasn't, I don't think it was fair. I don't think it was good journalism. I think Mark Ramondi is a good journalist, but I think it was very bad journalistic, uh, an, a, an example of a bad journalistic decision. But what, remedy did I have now had I been with a promotion or had a promotion been in a situation where they felt you know something was out out there was totally amiss and nefarious is there is there going to be an opportunity for them to go to a dance stop or go to this journalism association to go to their board and have their case heard that, that's that's a very good question Sam I don't know because you know I don't think that the way Bellator and a lot of promotions that aren't the UFC I don't think the way that they're covered is necessarily fair. I mean look I, for me I'm not a full-time journalist um in MMA. I mean look my my full-time job is running Radio Influence. You know as a chief financial officer. So if my job was full-time in MMA, you know, I'd probably be more proactive in finding out what's what's going on with with the association <clears throat> and, and to see exactly what they're going to do. Um, I, I at the end of the day, I don't think that's something for me in, in terms of, of where I'm at and what I do. Um, but I, I definitely think for and look and there's probably a handful of people that truly are full-time MMA journalists that this is all they do and this is how they pay their bills that they don't have any other side jobs they don't have any you know freelance gigs you know it, it's probably you know a handful of people that that have that yep, absolutely. um but but for me i i don't personally at this point i don't see for me what what is the advantage of me joining a journalism association um you know look I, there are times as a reporter that clearly will uh, promoters or people in, at work for a promotion maybe don't necessarily like the something you do report, no doubt. Um, my my thought process has always been is you may not like what I'm reporting, but if what I'm reporting is true, you can't get mad at me because I'm just reporting facts. And it's only it's only happened one time in my career where I actually had someone call me up and basically 
demand retraction. And, and I said, I believe my sources. I've got all the information. And, of course, this person thought that I was just going to hand them over all my sources, which I was like, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's not happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I looked and I told the person, I said, I have documents that back all this up. Um, but I, I've never dealt with that. I mean, and, uh, you know, look, you know, promotion, you know, promoters, I, I think a lot of them, I, I don't want to group them all in one thing, but I think a lot of them view the MMA media as an extension of their PR department. And, and yep. that's, and that's not the way it should be. You know, we're, but, we're here to, sometimes that's the way it is though. No, it is. I mean, look, you know, when, when you do an interview with somebody and look, I do, I still do a lot of, you know, fighter interviews for my podcast, whatnot. Um, you know, yes, you're going to come on and, and we're going to promote your fight, but also, you know, the the goal of any reporter is to conduct an interview where it's ultimately going to get some traction and, and lead to clicks to your site, you know, based on, on what they say. You know, I did an interview last week with Ryan Couture that I, I thought it was interesting. We, we talked a, a, a good amount about his relationship with his father in the training room and outside the training room. I thought that was fascinating information. That's for me. That's the type of stuff I like to try to get out of fires is, I mean, look, we're all going to ask the same questions about their upcoming fight, but what can I find out about that person away from fighting that ultimately is going to get more attention to people want to, to download my podcast or, or listen to inter- individual interview on the Ameriport.com. That's, and that's that's a good point. I mean, you know, it's got me thinking because certain sites, because you know, look, the UFC is the driving force in, in MMA media. I mean, they're they're the ones that get no the question. clicks. But what do you do if you're a Bellator and you've got this huge pay per view with a stacked card, and certain sites will not touch it? Not because they don't think, you know, because certain sites, they'll use that. We don't cover a lot of non-UFC stuff because the demand isn't there and we don't get the clicks. But here you go. You've got a real reason to cover Bellator. And there's a lot of sites that won't do it. Not because they're not going to get the clicks, but because it's Bellator going to pay-per-view, infringing on the territory of the UFC. And these sites, whether it's spoken or unspoken, they're in fear that if they give too much coverage to Bellator, it's going to affect their standing with the UFC. If you're Bellator, can you go to the Journalists Association? Will the Journalists journalist Association, will they take that call from Bellator? Bellator, if they express that concern in a professional, articulate manner, Will that be investigated? Will that but, be acted upon? Because, you know, it's like you go to the UG sometimes and Bellator will have an event that night and you don't see anything almost next to nothing on the front page. See, now I'm in a different situation, Sam, because I operate the website so I can post whatever I want to post about. And, and I, I I, mean, look, you go to mareport.com now, everything on there is original content. It's nothing, you know, it, it's all my interviews and, you know, TV ratings and, and some Bellator um, stat pieces, but it's, but if you work for another site where you're not the editor, you have to literally, it, it's ultimately up to the editor where that, that story gets run. I, I think that one of, you know, I think one of the things that I have not seen currently, and maybe this is going to happen as this week goes on. I would hope that we start to see more stories about these fighters on, on the belt or NYC card. That's more about who they are as people. Like if, I hope we see something about Brent premise about who is Brent premise, because what happens if he does shock the MMA world and he beats Michael Chandler? Well, there's not a lot of Bellator coverage out there. And Jason, to be honest with you, a lot of the coverage that I do read, I feel like it's lazy. 
lazy reporting, the storytelling. Like you just talked about it right there. I, you know, I don't. We don't hear those stories about Bellator. I mean, if a guy agrees to do an interview with Bellator, and I'm not saying every journalist does this, but I think most of them do. It's like it feels like they've only interviewed them for ten to ten to fifteen minutes, and they're just trying to get the interview over with. Well, I and, mean, because uh, you because you because you, you, you read the article and there's nothing groundbreaking there. Well, in these, I, I can just tell you this is my personal experience because a majority of my Bellator interviews are through Bellator PR. There's times where I get those interviews through, you know, a manager or, or a PR rep for that fighter. But, you know, you, you know you've got about 10 to 15 minutes with that fighter. And, and the way I interview fighters is I just, I really don't write down, I don't write down questions. I, I write, you know, like their name, record, who they're fighting, when, where, you know, name of the Bellator event. What not, but I always, the way I, I conduct interviews is I just listen to what you say and, and I try to, to pick and choose, you know, um, like my podcast that comes out tomorrow, I've got an interview with James Gallagher. And one of the things I just decided to do was I talked to him about his tattoos. Hey, when, when was the first tattoo you got? When was the last tattoo you got? Uh, you know, he got his first tattoo at 15 years old. That's something I found out in that interview. You know, I, I try to. If someone is listening to my interview, because I post all the audio of all the interviews I do, so you know what I asked to get to the to whatever you know the quote was that he said, is I'm always trying to find something different, something that draws an audience to my interviews that you're not going to see on any other interview. But but you're an outlier. You you John Nash, Kareem Zidane, Mike Russell, Paul Gift. You guys are outliers. I mean, you guys don't. You guys report what you want to report, and you don't live in that bubble where you have to worry about what the UFC thinks of you. There's still too many guys out there that their coverage, their body of work is sculpted and determined Mm -hmm. by what they perceive the UFC's opinion of them will be. And I'm hoping maybe this journalist's association will give some of these guys some feeling of empowerment. Some feeling that, you know, if something does go awry, that their livelihoods will not be completely stripped from them, that they will have some form of due process, some kind of mechanism, a system, a support system that could be there to help them if they are aggrieved and they are wronged. And maybe give some of them the courage to to cover the sport in a more even handed fashion, because right now. Everything is so weighted towards the UFC, and I think there's just too many guys that cover the sport. They live in fear of what could happen to them if they give a Bellator or a World Series of Fighting, uh, you know, uh, if they give them too much coverage. Look, I hope there's a ton of coverage for Bellator NYC. Um, you know, look, and, and as I said, I'm not. I don't consider myself a full time journalist. I mean, look, I've I've got a prior uh, a prior obligation on, on Saturday night. Something I, I do with my friends every year, and uh, I mean, I'll I'll see probably a majority of the pay per view, but uh, you know, I I don't I don't live my life through MMA anymore. You know, um, and, and I I do a think lot of that, these guys do a lot. Of, and, I, you know, I, 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 Sam, I see. Every, you know, if I'm out doing whatever, maybe I'm going to a soccer match or you know just living life on on a Saturday night, and I see the these people that are constantly every Saturday night, and I just sometimes I wonder, like if you're if you're not making you know a, a full time salary to that to to justify all this, like how how you you've got to live a life outside of MMA and I think that more times than not I think when you see journalists leave MMA it's because they got burnt out 
another thing I want to point out here that I hope you know is is looked into it at some point because I think there needs to be written rules of ethics within MMA journalism. You know, within this association, you've got to assume that there's going to be bylaws. That if you're a member of this writer association, I was a member of the Pro Fighters, Pro Football Writers Association of America for a few years, and there was, you know, a bylaw. You know, there was a list of bylaws. You had to, in order to remain in good standing with the association and, and you know, achieve membership and maintain membership, you there was a code of conduct, and you had to operate, you know, um, within that those confines, and there was a high level of journalistic integrity applied. Are those journalistic rules going to apply to MMA? You know, one thing I encountered when I was doing PR for M1 and then working for Bellator, not in a PR capacity, but the big issue with M1 and also Bellator was how do we get more coverage? How do we get our fighters and our events more attention? And sometimes we would just straight out pick up the phone and, and call an editor, you know, with, with, with one of the sites or one of the outlets and say, you know, we feel like we're not being covered fairly and we feel like our guys are being overlooked and we're not getting you know we don't expect to get the same level of attention as the ufc but we don't feel it's you know proportionate we don't feel like it's 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 the the ratio is is accurate and and some of the sites you know they put us in touch with their marketing department or their ceo and what we'd get back you know what i i got this back when i worked for m1 one of the sites said until you start advertising with us this is the level of coverage you're going to get. But if you advertise with us, you'll get more coverage. See, my mentality is totally different, Sam. I, I just I, – and I guess it's just – I think it comes from when I started in radio and my first program director, before I, I did my first on-air shift, he, he brought me in and he said, he goes, look, you can't be the morning show. You can't be the afternoon show. You can't be the midday show. you got to be who you are. Now, can you take – what they do and incorporate into who you are. Yes. And I kind of, I use that when I, I decided to ultimately leave, um, clear channel, um, media and, and start my own website. I, I said, I looked at the MMA landscape and that's a, a big reason why I said, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm really going to, to look at Bellator here because I just, I said that you, you have to, you have to do something that sticks out. You know, and, and ultimately, I think that's why I I kind of was able to do what I was able to do in a short amount of time, just because I was providing content that that was not out there. Um, but, but sorry to cut you off, but Jason, again, you're an outlier. You're you're independent. You're different than the majority of the media out there. What's your opinion of a the journalists that live in fear of the UFC and b these sites that. They'll go to the non-UFC promotions when when they put those inquiries out. You know what can we do to get more coverage? It's a pay or pl- it's a pay for play situation. What I, you know? I, what I are your thoughts I, of that? I, look from a business aspect, I understand why you're trying to get advertising, but I don't like the fact of you're you're, you're basically saying you got to pay to get content. I don't I don't like that. Um, you know because I I do think that you sh- as a if you're running a a MMA news site that you should be paying particular attention to everything going on in MMA, just not one promotion. Can I understand why a journalist who gets a full-time salary covering this sport has a fear of pissing off the UFC? Yes, I understand that. I get that. Um, but, you know, to me, I, I guess, you know, and, and maybe that's why I don't work for a major MMA website is that uh, – I, I, you know, I just want to provide, you know, unique content and, and I don't care what organization you fight for. 
and we shouldn't just look at this from a micro perspective. We need to look at it from a macro perspective as well. It's not just MMA in which this goes on. I mean, we would be kidding ourselves if we, we thought we thought that. Look at ESPN. You know, they don't if they don't have a right if they don't have the rights to the sport, they don't cover it the same way as if they if they televise it on their air. Look at hockey. I mean, they didn't have they haven't had hockey for years. And they didn't have a big hockey coverage department before the layoffs. Now, after the layoffs, who do they have there to cover hockey? I mean, it, it's they're telling hockey fans that hockey doesn't matter yeah. because we don't have you know because they have a deal with other with another network. Hockey does not matter. You do not matter. And you know it's uh, it's th- it, these these uh jilted weighted journalistic decisions it goes on too much now journalism has changed so much it's it's i feel like it's a, a so it's a pay for play environment i'm not saying it's that's never been the case but i think it's more prevalent than ever before these days oh what i learned in journalism class in college doesn't exist today yeah i mean, I mean that's that's why someone like alex jones has millions of followers because yeah he has these crazy conspiracy theories and he says some real dumb shit some real offensive shit, but there's a lot of people because they feel he's the, he's his own person and he's independent and he's not controlled by some of the politics that these networks are controlled by. They there's people out there, whether you agree with it or not, there's a lot of people out there putting a lot of faith in what he reports. You know, one of the things I don't know if you've seen the application for the Journalist Association, but there are questions here. I do wonder if people will true truly want to answer them and also truly want to give the honest answer. Um, you know, one of them is, is MMA your full-time job? If not, what is, um, approximately how many hours per week do you devote to covering MMA? Um, there was, uh, another question of have any of your fight related expenses been subsidized by a promoter, sanctioning body manager, or any other member well, of the mixed martial arts community. Can, other I, can that, I cut you off? Can I cut ahead. you off there? You you know, and I know, that there are some writers that their expenses to cover the UFC outside of the U.S., those are picked up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, here's, here's somebody, a, here's, somebody, I, so if somebody answers that question honestly, are they going to be a part of the association? Are they going to get membership? Here, here's another one in related to that. Have you ever received payment in exchange for your work from a promoter, manager, fighter, any other party with a vested interest in MMA? Oh, now look, you know, I, I, I have a file said this. Look, I got paid by Bellator, but I, yeah. I it was for articles. I was never told how to write them. I was never told. I, I'll tell you, there was only one time I ever got a phone call. And I remember it was on a, a, a like a early Saturday morning. Um, you know, as a reporter, you you when you get up in the morning, you go around to the sites. And this was when it was it was on Bellator.com. And I don't know if, if this time I, if I was writing for Bellator or not. And it was about the tournament champion replacement clause. And it was an article posted on, on Bellator.com, and basically I just you know, basically wrote a piece in relation to what was on Bellator.com. And uh, Anthony Mazuka, who was the PR director at that time, gave me a call and he's like, hey, um, yeah, that story was put up on the website by mistake. And he goes, look, I understand you're doing your job. 
and it was on bellator.com but you know could you maybe you know take that down and when we want to go with it live you get the exclusive you know that was the only time i ever i've i've ever had any you know concerns with bellator but i mean how many journalists who have gotten paid in some way from an organization manager whatever are want to admit that they probably don't want to admit it, and a lot of them probably aren't proud of it, but it's it's tough to make a living full-time as an MMA journalist. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in good standing with the UFC, you can almost kiss any opportunity of, to, of being a full-time MMA journalist goodbye. You know, that's it's sad that it's come to that, but, you know, journalism's changed over the years. You know, all the lines have been blurred, and they've been blurred for a long time. And they're just not just blurred in, in MMA. They're blurred in all the sports. Yeah, the you know? big, the, I, I, th- I think ESPN is the biggest contributor to that. Like the thing, I, I think they really changed because by adjusting their level level of coverage of certain sports uh, based on whether or not they had the television rights, they they essentially went from being a journalistic outfit to being a promoter. I mean, if they if they had an interest in baseball, they promoted baseball as if they were the promoter. You know, the thing I hate, Sam, in, in and this is not MMA media, this is sports media in general. It's just all the clickbait crap, you know, and uh, I, I just, you know, whether it's MMA or anything, I just like give me original content. I I, I just, you know, there's too, we have too many websites out there that it is literally, I, you know, I'll use a, a, a line that uh, front row Brian likes to say the, the copy and paste mafia. You know, I, I just, there's a lot of, and, and you see a lot of MMA, there's a lot of MMA websites that all they are is MMA junkie light. So much competition to get people's eyeballs. It's just because everything is segregated. There's so many choices now. There's so many different but, ways to get your news and to get your entertainment. It's 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 like you have to go above and beyond to, to get those eyeballs now. And you made a great point uh, a couple of podcasts ago where you, you sat there and said when you were running Five Ounce of Pain, the type of articles that you would run back then are not the type of articles that run today, which are more about kind of telling the story of a fighter. Yeah, I mean, I have no interest in getting back into to MMA journalism or if you don't consider what I did journalism, that's fine. Just to say I have no interest in getting back into regular MMA content, to producing content. But if I did, I wouldn't even have a website. I wouldn't do a website. I would probably do it all Twitter and, and, and podcasts and, and, and video. I mean, it's oh, just... I, I, Sam, I, all I do is podcasts and video interviews. Yeah. That's all who I reads, do. Who reads articles anymore? <sighs> Not not I could I could I could write a great article that was, you know, 750, 1,000, 1,500 words, but who would read it now? No, unless your article is like 600 words or less. Yep. I mean, it's just... If I did it as a slideshow, I'd probably get a ton of clicks. But... <laughs> oh, that's so true. That's so true. <laughs> well, I guess we'll end on that note. We've, we've gone about two hours. We we uh, we did not necessarily plan to go this long, but... Uh, Longest show we've ever done. But uh, it was good conversations. Uh, as always, Sam, always uh, enjoy talking to you. And, uh, of course, we can always follow you on Twitter at Sam Kaplan MMA. I'm sure we'll, we'll be seeing you tweeting on Thursday night with your uh, 76ers. What's it? Is it trust the process? Is that what it is? Trust the process. I don't know if I'm going to be tweeting a lot. I think the draft for us is, is pretty much, for me, it's over. I mean, we, we got Markel Fultz, and that's it. I know we've got four second-round picks, but you know who uses four second-round picks? I, I, I tell you, if Markel Fultz uh, ends up being a franchise player, that's uh, that'll be a great deal for them. It's not an if. It will. You know, oh, it's, wow. <laughs> look, they, 
Have you seen the guy is good? I, you know, I'll, I'll admit and say I didn't watch a lot of the Washington games. Uh, I didn't watch any of them, but I, I've seen his YouTube. Guy looks good on YouTube, man. This guy is good. Surprised that the Celtics didn't get more for for trading that pick. The only way, the only reason why they did that trade and, and you know didn't ask for more. They they didn't trade Markel Fultz. They traded the they trade they traded the pick because if you like the player at that pick. You, you command a lot more for him th- than that. So to me, it says that Danny Ainge didn't like Markel Fultz. And I think that while I respect his basketball ex- expertise, I think he's going to look pretty stupid. It, it, you know, history is going to make him look like a fool uh, as a result of this trade. I think Fultz is the real deal. I think it's in today's NBA, his versatility, he is the perfect player for today's NBA and he's the perfect guy for the Sixers. I think he was the only guy. There are certain guys that fit from a talent standpoint, and there were certain guys that fit from a need standpoint. There wasn't anyone that fit from both a talent and need standpoint outside of Markel Fultz. And and they, you know, congratulations to Brian Colangelo for for making a hell of a move. This is going to be a very lopsided trade in, in, in the future. Look, if you might want to call me on Thursday if the Magic take another foreign player just to make sure I'm alive. I, I might literally just start, you know. You know what? You know what? I was listening to an NBA podcast, and I guess this will be it for me. I, I knew that Victor Oladipo was was a first round pick. Was he really a number two overall pick? Uh I think he was actually. Wow. I, you know, he's not bad. He's a good athlete, and you know, he, he's pretty good on defense but he's a role player i mean when we traded him away this year i mean you look at some of the magic draft picks it's just awful it's just alfred awful. payton alfred payton I, you know that that's, I, I, actually, I, I like look i like De'Aaron fox i like his athleticism I, I enjoy watching him play and he had a hell of a run in the ncaa tournament but you know is he the next alfred payton you've got to be able to shoot as a point guard in today's nba i think if he's i think the guy they're going to take is jonathan isaac out of florida state wouldn't be a bad pick. What what no. what pick did the match? What number six? Number six, yeah. And, and there was I found a great website about uh, NBA salary caps, and it shows you everything. And yeah, it's gonna be another rough year for the Magic because they have no salary cap room because we have just god awful contracts with big men. And uh, it, it's it's Sam. You know, you, it's you tough to you be a Magic Jason? fan. You know what you need, Jason? What's that? You need Sam Hinkie. <laughs> Well, you they, need the the magic need the process. Oh man, yeah. They well, need to start the process. They need to bring in Sam Anke. Yeah, they've actually put some money into their front uh their front office personnel, so uh it's uh it, it's been tough to watch uh it's been tough to watch magic games the past couple of years. Well, you know, a lot of people criticize Sam Hankey. I'm not a big fan of some of his draft picks, but his overall strategy, his overall philosophy, I think it's proven to be correct. It's a shame he didn't get to see it to full fruition with the Sixers, but my prediction is within the next 12 months, he will be a NBA GM again. I think that a lot of people now, they've seen what has been the end result of the Sixers, the the, the accumulation of all the assets and how they're cashing in some of those assets. I think there's going to be a lot of people buying into the the Sam Hankey program, and I think he'll get a job again pretty soon. And ultimately, the best way you build your team is through the draft. You know, you can say everything about the Warriors, but three of their big four were all draft picks. So that's young that's, talent, Jason. That's the only way in any sport, even yep. MMA, you have to build through young talent. 
because if you go through free agency, it's it's it, free agency inherently is overspending. And to tie that in MMA, we'll see how Aaron Pico does on Saturday night. Looking forward to that. Sam, as always, appreciate time. Of course, you can always listen to this podcast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and and also on Google Play. Just search the MMA Insiders. Of course, there's a link to all available on RadioInfluence.com. So it's going to wrap it up for this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. This is a sitting ringside with David Penzer. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Hi, this is David Penzer. You might know me uh, from WCW, TNA Wrestling, or Impact Wrestling at the current time. Uh, I am a ring announcer in the pro wrestling business. I was in World Championship Wrestling during the Monday Night Wars. You might remember those. Sat ringside for every... Monday Night Show, WCW Thunder, every house show and um, pay-per-view for about a decade. And uh, in later years, worked for TNA Wrestling on Spike TV and currently Impact Wrestling on Pop TV. Wanted to start a podcast, but I wanted to do, add a little of my own flavor to it. So what we're going to do on City Ringside with David Penzers, we're going to talk to a lot of my friends that I've made throughout the years, uh, people you might know, uh, people you definitely will know if you're a fan of professional wrestling. We're going to talk to them and tell some stories and almost like we're driving down the road 300 miles like uh, we had to do back in the day before there was internet and cell phones. We told stories mostly and uh, ribbed each other a little bit. And so we're going to try to bring that to you in the form of a podcast, not so much uh, where were you born and uh, you know how'd you get into professional wrestling, but just telling some stories that I experienced with these guys on the road. One other thing I wanted to do to make it special, though, because... I wanted to make this a special type of podcast where it's just not interviewing the stars of professional wrestling, which is important, and we're going to do that. Uh, I want to have a section on each show. I'm going to try to do it called by, Behind the Spotlight. And um, there's so many people in the professional wrestling business, whether you're a referee or a ring announcer like myself, a producer, a uh, booker, uh, talent relations that add to what you see on television, and they're behind the spotlight. They are not the big stars. They're not making you know, the big money. They're not getting asked for autographs for the most part. And, uh, but they got a lot of stories to tell. Sometimes their stories are even better than uh, the stories that the wrestlers have because uh, they've seen a lot of stuff go down behind the scenes, and uh, they're, they're not afraid to tell their stories. So uh, I want to try to do that, and I have a lot of people in mind that I want to talk to, and give you the fans a little bit of behind the scenes on how a wrestling show is put together. Uh, some of the challenges uh, we'll talk about some names that you might know. Uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, uh, Jimmy Hart, uh, Chavo Guerrero, Chris Jericho, uh, guys I used to run up and down the road with Hugh Morris, Bill DeMott. Uh, the list goes on and on. Even Chris Benoit. We'll uh, talk about that, even though that's a hard subject to talk about. Also tell you some stories. There's all kinds of rumors back in the Nitro days of the show literally being written as it was airing live on uh, TNT. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit and uh, maybe interview some of the producers and the, the talent relations people, the pe- people sitting at the gorilla position and talk about how sometimes literally they would get uh, segment by segment, you know, as we were going along a live two hour, three hour show. So um, very interested in getting feedback from the fans. Hit us up on Twitter at Penzer Ringside, at Penzer Ringside on Twitter. 
So check it out. Give it a listen, and I hope you enjoy what we're trying to do. Sitting ringside with David Penzer. Looking forward to doing it. Sitting ringside with David Penzer can be found on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. 